Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this week's Action for Everyone for this year, November 27th, 2022, our post-American Thanksgiving uh, episode. Uh, we uh, we had a plan for this week. Uh, one of our guests reached out to us a couple of weeks ago and asked us if we would be interested in doing a tribute to Albert Pune. And uh, obviously, anybody that's listened to this show knows how big of a fan I am of him. So we jumped on that and uh, I, we sent out some invites for some other people and it was supposed to be a celebration of all things Pune. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and the idea was for us to record it so that he could hopefully hear it so that he could hopefully hear uh, what he meant to a lot of us. Um, 
And uh, unfortunately, uh, last night, prior to recording, he uh, passed away. So what was going to be a tribute is now a, a memoriam. Uh, but we're, we're going to do it and we're going to do the best we can. Um, and there's probably going to be some real time processing here. Uh, so let me, let me introduce our esteemed panel. Uh, first and foremost, Liam is not here. He is on his way, a bit of good news. He is on his way to London to scout, uh, locations for Skyline Radial. And, uh, again, uh, as you guys know, if you've listened to this show, no movie is made until it's actually made, but radial is starting to feel more and more real. And, uh, I know there's at least a few of us on this panel that have read that script. And believe me, when I tell you, you all ain't fucking ready for this movie. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be Liam. It's Liam to the next level. Um, so buddy, when you're, I hope you're listening to this. I hope you have a safe trip. Uh, and we are also joined as always by vice Victus vice. How are you today? Oh man, I'm doing, doing man. So, you know, we had a pretty, you know, at least here at the home had a great holiday Thanksgiving. All the family came over from, or around around the country. Um, before we get to our guests, I just hmm, I kind of want to frame this. So, like I as you mentioned before, we planned this as a tribute, and now it's a bit of a eulogy. So I, I'm kind of even more prepared than I was already was. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't feel. I know a lot of people are going to be devastated even now this morning as I wake up. You know, see the news. Lots of people. You know. Especially in the condolences and our heartbreak about it, um, but if, from the way I kind of think about it, it's um, these usually these funerals, the celebrations, and uh, and we're here to celebrate one of the, like you know a kind of a master, a kind of a rogue master of cinema of this art we love, and I, I keep thinking about I hate having to relate everything to army army experience, but you know that's you know. Um, which is to say, I'm I'm used to death in all its spectrums, spectrums. And I remember my first uh, military funeral that I attended for a fellow soldier. And the first sergeant, uh, you know, he had of course, definitely seen his share, fair share of death. And he was kind of just kind of like, "It's okay, guys. Uh, if you're gonna holler and cross, it'll be all right. But uh, don't make it the uh, Southern Baptist." As if to say, you know, he was like, "It's okay to cry and say emotions, but you know, you also gotta like, you know, compose yourself." So I'm thinking about that that story from way back because uh, I kind of that's how I'm kind of going forward with this right now. We have a lot to talk about and uh, a lot of a great person to honor. So you know it it might get emotional, of course, because we were also invested in it. But you know we're also like uh we're we're here to we're always here to have a good time. Honestly, even even we're talking about mass shootings, like, you know, it's crazy enough. Like we're here to like help y'all, or at the very least help ourselves through helping y'all. So. I just wanted to kind of put frame this today's episode because you know it's a very strange times. Well, when aren't they strange times? But uh, <laughs> this is kind of if you hear, if you hear us all uh, chuckling and, and, and uh, hollering, hooting, that's a good thing. That's celebration of life that was well lived. So yeah, so um, yeah, I give back. I give back to you so you can introduce the rest of the cast here. <laughs> And we do, we do have a large, this is the largest ensemble that we've ever had. We, we did have, uh, I, I sent out some invites to a couple other people that I do want to shout out. Uh, primarily, obviously, Liam's not here, but uh, Patrick Bromley from F This Movie, who was kind enough to let me come on a few months ago and talk about Albert Pune on F This Movie. He could not make it work today, but I know he is grieving today. And if he could be here, he would, he would definitely have wanted to. Uh, but our first guest is the one who actually suggested putting this show together. He's been on the show before. Uh, he is my, my Matrix resident directions buddy uh and he is also you may know him as the writer of mandy uh 
Aaron Stewart on. Aaron, how are you today, man? Oh, uh, yeah. Like you said, real-time processing. Um, we're going to get into this, but I have always seen Albert Pune as one of the ultimate underdogs of cinema. And this is going back to the 90s when I first discovered his work on VHS and how he was critically received. Um, so I, I've always tried to just kind of keep up with, you know, how he's doing. And I, I, I we'll get into this too, but the the past decade of his life, he he made films under circumstances most people would totally give up on. You know, he he had early onset dementia. He was suffering from multiple sclerosis, and uh, he was making films from a laptop in his bed against all odds. And to me, that really defines something extraordinary about his career. He loved dogs. There's a lot of dogs in his movies. On his Facebook page, you can see that. He was an underdog, and, uh, you know, this is awake to me. I'm I'm here to celebrate and uh, to really talk about how these movies are underappraised, undervalued, and uh, to to celebrate a great filmmaker, you know, in every sincere emotional way I can. So that's what I hope to get across and convince some of you all to look at the films in a different light or to give them another shot. Well said, well said. And our next guest is actually uh, one that I, 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 I'm I so happy he's here because he is a, I'm going to call him out a little bit, he's a bit of a youngin. And so he is he is the most recent convert to the cult of Pune, uh, but has, uh, I feel like, uh, embraced Albert as wholeheartedly as anybody of his generation that I've ever seen. Brandon Streisnick. Brandon, how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm good. Sad, but good. Um I it's funny I I was not to brag but I am a little bit younger than you guys so um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it so for most of my what it, uh, film going or watching journey <clears throat> excuse me uh, I Hewn always was kind of uh, you know as I was like growing up just you know coming into my own on the internet Pune what the the way he was framed to me was like I, I hate to put it this way but it's it's the truth was like kind of like a joke and and it's awful to look back on you know all those you know i never got into the whole you know film reviewer youtuber thing but i would just see you know clips and stuff pop up from those kind of guys kind of making fun of his movies and everything so in the back of my head for a long time i was like oh that's the guy that made that bad captain america movie and it just didn't really come across to me as any anything worth seeking out but then a few years ago i started to really dive in you know i think i started with cyborg and i was like not only is this good but it's not one of the i it really kind of reframed the idea of something being so bad it's good as not being a a real thing to me because i was like this is just good good it's like it's not you know and, and i started to fall further down whatever the pune rabbit hole was and i was just like oh these are all just good like this guy has a real sense of craft he you know and we'll get into all of this but just you know very briefly watching nemesis for the first time you know some of that some of the gun ballet or whatever you want to call it in that was to me as good as anything john woo has done and i was like so this guy is just good and i just really kind of i kind of got bitter for a while looking back at those years and years that i wasted you know, just with whatever his cultural reception was in my head. And I'm just kind of frustrated with all those people who dismissed him. And I'm glad that all of those people from the 2010s are kind of irrelevant now because their opinion is, is wrong is all I'm going to say, but yeah, not, not to, not to turn, turn all of that into anger, I guess, but yeah, I just, he's like the kind of 
preeminent example of a guy who just was written off for for no reason just because i think his films are so earnest and people can't really handle that but yeah we'll we'll talk more about it but that's all i wanted to say initially and finally uh and justin i apologize i i always ask people before we record i i never assume how to pronounce their names so uh I, if i mispronounce your name feel free to correct me but we have the guy who uh literally wrote the book on Albert Pune. Uh, he's also the owner of uh, Gold Gold Ninja or Gold Ninja Video. And uh, and I want to thank you for also putting out the the great um Dennis Rule uh, movie I, that I'm drawing a blank on. My uh Unlucky my Stars. Yes, thank you. I love that movie. I don't know. I again real-time processing here, folks. I am not gonna be at my A game as the host, but Justin DeClue. Justin, how are you today? I am very happy to be here even though that these are pretty sad circumstances. And I do want to echo basically what everybody already said is that Albert Pyun is the ultimate underdog filmmaker and that he was never properly appreciated for everything that he did. Like, we're going to get into it, but this was a guy that when he made Nemesis and we say, oh, wow, it's the best that, you know, even John Woo ever did. He was doing it before anybody was in 1992, no one that wasn't seasonal films were making films in North America that had that kind of action. And he was always that one step ahead. And like you guys already said, he was always fighting, making movies in situations that none of us would continue making movies in. Like no critical reception. The budget just continually kept dropping, but he kept powering on. He had to make movies, was always challenging himself. And we'll get into it. One of the frustrating parts is that he never made any horror films. He he has some later in his career, but if he had made some in the 80s and the 90s, I feel he would have a way better cult than he has right now. But he was an action guy. That's what he was passionate about, and those are the movies that he made. That's actually something that I, I love that you just brought that up because that's actually one of the reasons we even started this show. And even going back to when I started it as Adkins Undisputed that we started with is, look, I love horror, but for whatever reason, horror, low budget indie iconoclastic horror seems to get this uh, reputation and, 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 and reevaluation that action movies just don't get. And that is the problem is he's making... He's making Nemesis. He's not making, uh, you know, a a weird like slasher sequel or something like that. You know, if he had made a Friday the 13th movie with the same budget that, you know, like John Carl Beagler's making. I mean, look, I I am actually a defender of Friday the 13th Part 7. I think that uh, I think that Carrie versus Jason is a hell of a hook for a movie. Uh, but. I have no doubt in my mind that Pune could have made that movie like, you know, and then he would have been part of this canon that would have allowed him to to go on. And, you know, it, it, and what we got now is the best we have as far as that really goes is Cyborg. Right. That's the that's sort of the one entry point for him. Uh, but even Cyborg, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, but it's not Bloodsport. It's not Kickboxer. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, it's actually kind of better. Uh, but then, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll kick it back to you. I just I wanted to reiterate that, that that is part of what we try and do here is there are these iconoclastic idiosyncratic directors making action movies and people need to pay attention to them. I think it's frustrating as well in that 
people just didn't know how to react to his films. Uh, Brandon mentioned that kind of wave of people that were like, oh, he's the Ed Wood of the 90s. And that's something that really haunted Albert for a long time. And then you would see what films it was attached to. and It would be like Knights, literally a wusha that he shot in North America in the desert. And you're like, this is the movie that you're going to rake over the coals? Like this genuine, weird, beautifully shot attempt at a genre that just didn't exist anywhere on the home video market in English? You guys don't know what you're talking about. And I'll, I'll key into that because I think in my experience on a movie set, there are two uh, things that are shot that just everyone stops for all the crew suddenly become just completely engrossed in. And it's when an actor is killing a scene. And the other thing is action. Like it's just the most pure form of cinema and it requires such precision and attention. Um, Everything's on point. Everything has to be so safe. Uh, It's just every set I've ever been on. I mean, horror requires such specific timing. It's really tricky to calibrate, but action is just so engrossing to watch when you're filming it. Uh, and I just feel the genre, like you're taught, both of you are talking, there, there, there's such a disreputable air associated with one of the most dominant, purest forms of filmmaking. Uh, it gets no respect. I mean, the fact that stunts still don't have an Oscar category, even though it, it, it it's it's such a contributor to the art of cinema, period, going back to silent films, is just shameful and ridiculous. And, you know, I... Like I, I want to celebrate too, but I'm I'm with Brandon's rage a little bit. I, I I'm I'm not just angry at the 2010s like YouTube people. I'm angry a little bit, and and you know he's passed away, so this isn't fair. But I'm angry at Roger Ebert and the way he wrote about you know Albert Pune's movies. Like um, to give a specific example, Cyborg has these uh, characters. They're all named after guitars and musical instruments. Like Jean Claude Van Damme's character is named Gibson Rickenbacker, and I remember being like. I don't know, I was maybe 12 or 11 and reading the Roger Ebert newspaper review uh, of Cyborg where he was making fun of that. And I was like, no, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> like all the characters are named after guitars, Fender Tremolo. Like I was just like, Roger Ebert has never stared at an Iron Maiden album cover and imagined how cool that is. And and there's a disconnect here between like the ashes of culture that I was growing up in in suburban, you know, red state America and, and, and the video store, what it offered me and my imagination uh, that, that, that I had access to. And, and I just felt such a separation between, you know, information moved such like so slowly then. So I didn't have access to interviews of Pune. I didn't know how compromised the films were, how many the edits were taken away from them. I just knew them as I knew them. And and I saw something really beautiful and and I'll get into it later. It's like, you know, like like for all the, the great action he did, there's a really specific tonal emotional quality to his movies that's so extraordinary and unique. And no matter how many times it was a challenge to make his films or the edits were taken away from him, fragments of it remain. Like, you know, we'll get into radioactive dreams, but but it has this like bittersweet. Uh, cool and just ridiculous fun ending that that had like stirs such strange emotions in you that no matter how compromised his 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 rights as a filmmaker were taken away from to make that movie it remains the traces are there and that's the quality I really respond to and and it and it's why um you know his movies were a very very specific inspiration for Mandy. You know, there were very few films that we talked about 
a, a lot of filmmakers these days work from a space of we're going to be inspired by this movie or reference it. We didn't do much of that, but we really talked about like man, we we talked about cyborg and sword and the sorcerer, and we talked about them as beautiful works of art, you know. And and, and I'll I'll talk about that later. I yeah, like I just want to kind of echo that a little bit. Is I I think what I key into most in his movies are how much how I guess I, I had a better word for this a minute ago, and I, I forgot, so I'm just going to say how positive they are. Um, because because when you you watch them you're just filled with like kind of a sense of hope like even something as like what which by rights should be schlocky like brain smasher like you think of you know dice's reputation how awful he is as a person but when you watch that movie not only does he pune pull just this kind of amazing chemistry out of andrew dice clay and terry hatcher like which shouldn't work on paper but that movie is just so hopeful and by the end you're like you you want to see a piece of garbage like dice clay like succeed and i and i feel that watching all of his movies um i think the most i ever felt that was alien from la i i bought the vinegar syndrome restoration just blind and i i will say i had (laughs) i had an edible when i watched it but i just like i i sunk into that movie and was just like, not only is this so hopeful and beautiful, but he's creating a whole entire world on no budget with like its own rhythms, its own um, its own language. The way people speak in that movie is just like unlike like their cadence of speaking is unlike anything I've ever seen. And it's just it's such a hopeful movie. And I just I don't know how that kind of stuff exists, to be honest, how he was able to create these entire worlds in entire visions of the future, even when they're like dystopian, like in the nemesis movies, there's still an air of hope to them that things are going to be okay. And where like people with insane bodies can exist as they are. Like he was the only person I think putting women, just like these ripped jacked women in his movies. And, and it, it wasn't like, it never felt like he was fetishizing them as much as he was just like, you know, Look, look at how beautiful these people are. And I just, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm kind of going off into two different directions there. But but yeah, I just, I really, really key into how hopeful and earnest he is. And I get that anytime I watch any of his movies. And I something I don't get from a lot of genre work. And it's just, it's really nice to put it simply. <laughs> something, uh, well, here, I think out of all of us in the group here, I'm probably the least familiar with his filmography. And this is kind of a running thing in my, for me on this show is that, um, you know, Mike is like a this film scholar and, you know, Liam has this old ground, groundwork of like these catalogs and he's just building stuff that I just, I just watch random bullshit. Uh, but like, so I, even me, me being here, I always learn stuff about the history of action cinema, which is fucking great. Uh, but something that kind of, I want to say I'm ashamed, but like, uh, I wish I had realized it earlier is that um, how much Albert Pune influenced my thought process and like, uh, but but also, American action like it didn't really. I, I honestly like I, as before you know when I heard it you know when he was ill and I finally kind of actually researched his filmography and I realized I'd seen several of his movies that I had no idea it was him, like Captain America was the big one that people you know you people say you know they make fun of him for but like I I was that shit was dope to me as a kid I was loving that shit you know because it, it was for me it was for me young little kid watching on the WPIX Channel Eleven New York the movie like they finish it constantly. And it's like he made that shit for me, for kids like us, for people like us, like who had no no 
pretensions or uh, illusions about what a movie is supposed to be, quote unquote. It just was what it was. You know, Sword and Sorcerer, my, my older brother. Uh, my older brother was actually he's actually a little more to fantasy and stuff. But he did, um, but he never like really. He's not deep into describing movies the way I am or analyzing, but like he's very much you know Krull and and uh, Sword and Sorcerer and all, you know Excalibur, and that was one of his favorite movies. You know, and I, and I kind of felt that off from him as well. So yeah, and so you see, like he has this. And of course, you know, the big one that people know, Cyborg, like uh, he has, he's weaved himself into the fabric of American cinema and in a way that, like you, like you were saying, like, you know, he doesn't get no play like the way like horror, horror, horror directors do, but you know, he's doing like, this is like a uh, Walter Hill. This is a uh, John Carpenter. Like he, he's part of that canon, the action canon too. And he didn't even get play that in that one either. Like forget horror, like even among his own contemporaries, like he, he's not. He's not as respected, even though the filmography shows that he's part of that 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 framework. So yeah, it was just, it was just really nice to. Unfortunately, you know, I, well, I guess now and it was too late to fully realize the depths of what he brought to the table for Alvaro. But you know, but you know that that's kind of what we're doing here with the show today. Is kind of we really want to appreciate what he did truly and truly expand upon it and let everybody know. You know, whether you, you've watched this movie before, I had no idea it was him. Or you're brand new, you know, watching like watching things from 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 the old days for the first time as a kid now or young adult. Like you know, he this he got he he has so much this legacy. He has so much for us to to uh, to enjoy. That's really cool, even for an old head like me. <laughs> <laughs> you know the one. So I've been a fan my whole life of of Albert. Um, <clears throat> And I mean, I, I was, I, I tried to dig it out and I didn't have time. I wanted to, I I've had a nemesis poster that I have carried around since 1990 fucking two. Like, uh, wow. I, it's yeah, I got it at a video store. It's framed. It's, it's torn. It's been waterlogged, but I still, I still have it, but I didn't have time to get it. But, um, I I've been an Albert fan my whole life, but a few years ago, I kind of started doing, I always did a little bit of an ironic thing. And actually, Justin, you were you were part of this reevaluation for me in your book is is because of the reputation that he had. And and look, let's folks listening, I we're not gonna we're not gonna lie here. Albert made some movies that I think are borderline unwatchable. I mean, I don't I don't <laughs> think that's unfair. Especially later in his career. Yeah, his his hip hop era is oh. rough. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. who's is it? Who's isn't? You know, <laughs> half ass dead. Come no, on, look, we should, we, and we should have fun with this. I love that we're remembering the best moments from his movies. But it's like Nemesis Two is is extraordinary. But I'm gonna just say it like. The opening of that movie is like Nancy Pelosi's Wakanda Forever. It's like so <laughs> yeah. weird. And you're all laughing because you know it's so weird. And, um, and, and also, I think him discovering, I think, uh, unfortunately, Zack Snyder broke his brain because Zack Snyder making 300 on an entire green screen, uh, you know, that that led to some stuff. But but it. Uh, I want to say that Albert started a full green screen film that he never finished called Sorcerers in 1998. Wow. Okay. Wow. That is something I did not know. That is, see, this is why we wanted well, you on the show. I did not know that. Um, I think the the other context, though, there, Mike, is that you know the the illness. I mean, Justin, do you want, remember when the dementia set in? I mean, he. Oh, it was a long time ago. Like by the time I started writing my book three years ago, it felt like it was reaching kind of like the end of it. 
So he had been, um, you know, suffering for quite a long time. And especially later on in his career, his films kind of reflect that. Um, people have discussed that like Interstellar Civil War, which is a film that he finished and is out there, is like something that was created by someone who didn't quite grasp what he was making. Like a festival programmer kind of explained it to me. But I mean, Albert could not stop making movies. He just, and he was so passionate that even when he was working in Las Vegas, like he could get actors to show up and act in these films because he was just always present and always full of ideas. Well, and that's actually, it's, it's, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch. Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. But that, that's the triumph really of a, of a mm -hmm. disabled person. I mean, like, because I remember reading nine years ago online, like, uh, you know, the he would lose vision sometimes. He wasn't able to operate a mouse and he was cutting the film himself on a laptop at home in his bed. Um, and so, I mean, that is really true outsider art, like against all the odds, like the, these later films. And so, you know, it, yeah, it's super easy to just watch that trailer and be dismissive and ironic. But I, mm -hmm. I do feel it's important context to say this is a filmmaker who was working at the limits of physical and mental health challenges. And and that's, to me, he wanted to go down fighting, you know, like Kinji mm -hmm. Fukusaku, and, and, and that's inspiring. Like, I know that he's talked about that in 1996, when he was shooting Ravenhawk, he started losing like feeling in his arms. There's a story of him like climbing up a ladder uh, and saying, he's like, I can't move. Like, I, like my body just shut down. So I think it goes that far back that he was having health issues. Well, and his, you know, his, I'm just going to one last thing, Mike, you know, his, his wife has talked really openly about the challenges too. And, you know, the DGA, the Directors Guild of America have put together a report how directing is one of the lowest life expectancy union jobs in all of North America. It's hard on the body. And she said so much of his health was, you know, compromised by how devoted he was to the filmmaking. And, and, and that's a tragic part of it, but it's, but it's also, you know, that's what filmmakers do. Like we've said, he he never gave up. Anyway, sorry, Mike. No, no, you're you're good. Again, no no form, no structure here. This is all this yeah. is all just a, a free for all. But the thing that I was initially going to say is, yeah, to me, um, what I love about him, and, and and this was the thing. So I loved him growing up, and then I started doing kind of the ironic thing because i hit his hip-hop era you know and i, I think <laughs> like the wrecking crew and stuff are, are not 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 great well i want to let people know those three kind of like urban films that he made he did them because it was supposed to be one 90 minute anthology and he went but what if i made three hour-ish movies well and here's and the thing in a week what are, what are, in a week. what are their names what are their names uh they're um i'm looking right bad business that's right what's the third one i don't remember what uh, oh corrupt is it corrupt or that's right yeah um but here's the thing those movies are any other director making those movies in those circumstances in that situation is going to make a worse movie than the movie that Albert made. Yes. <laughs> and, and that is the thing that I started to really realize, you know, again, as somebody who's defended him my whole life, but has over the last five years or so has found a newfound love, like a deeper uh, appreciation because anytime somebody the, and the movie that I always call out or shout out anytime somebody's like, well, Albert Pune's a hack or Albert Pune's Ed Wood. I always, 
I, I know we all love radioactive dreams, but the one I always shout is dangerously close because he had a budget. He had an actual cast. And if you watch dangerously close, you can see what Albert Pune could do. Uh, and you could see that the fucking music that he so meticulously picked, the lighting, the shot selection, everything that he so meticulously did. This was a proper filmmaker. This was a, a filmmaker who had a vision and never had the resources or the opportunity other than a couple of movies to execute what you could very clearly see was in his head. And, uh, and for me, that's always the thing is, is, is when somebody wants to talk about his bad movies, it's like, fine, whatever. I don't give a shit about his bad movies. Give me the good ones because even the bad ones, you know, I just watched last year for the first time. Um, what would probably be argued as his like one horror movie left for dead, his horror Western. Uh, he does have one that's an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft story, Cool Air. I have not seen Cool Air, but Left for Dead is... frankly, as a horror Western. Kind of fucking good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> is is Cool Air an official H.P. Uh, Lovecraft title or was that? <laughs> it doesn't sound uh, yeah, like it's it's based on the story that was adapted in Necronomicon. Uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly what it's what it's called. Yeah, I think and, Cool Air is the actual title. Of yeah, it. I think it is. Wow, wow. Uh, it's about so the it's, guy it's, that's in a room, and the story at the end is like, but if he leaves that, if he leaves that room, he'll melt. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always not H.P. Lovecraft predicting '90s movies titles. Cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like I like the thing that we keep circling back on is that he was just so persistent and couldn't stop, and that was something that I I loved when I the first time I watched Nemesis Four. It feels so small and contained but there's like a world of imagination underneath how small it is. But then when you look into the production of Nemesis 4, he was making that while it was either while making another movie or it was the reshoots the, that were forced upon him for adrenaline fear of the rush. That's by right. Rear yeah. Yeah. He took <laughs> Weinstein money and said, fuck you. And made I'm going to make a movie. Cronenberg <laughs> sex film and call it yeah. Nemesis 4. So, so he was like telling the Weinsteins to fuck off way before it was cool. And I just mm -hmm. like, I mean, he was always ahead of the curve, but, um, <laughs> And then you brought up Justin last night on Twitter. Uh, Deceit, I think, was also shot under those circumstances where he just was making secret movies while making other movies because he just <laughs> couldn't stop. He couldn't stop. He was just like, "Look, I have these ideas. I have a little bit of extra money. Let's go make a black box like home invasion movie." And it's yeah. like, and always, he did it yeah. again with Blood Match, which he shot um, <laughs> while shooting Kickboxer Two. <laughs> It's just so inspiring. It's like when, when you hear stories like that, it's like, you know, why can't we all be out there doing something cool like that? Because it's like he was uh, he was making movies under the worst circumstances and then making movies underneath those movies. It's like he's yeah. make, making movies <laughs> while making movies. It's like there's nobody like him. It's just unbelievable. Well, And that's the, that's the one thing that I really, really want to shout out here really quick is here's how you know a director's cool. All right, you got Tom Matthews, you got uh, Norbert Weiser, you got Vincent Kling, you got like Albert had this, he had a crew, he had this cult of actors that would show up for whatever the, like he would pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm going to make a movie in, you know, this weekend. And they would, they would be there like huge. And we're not talking like 
necessarily like nobodies. I mean, fucking Tim Thomerson and Yuji Okamoto and, and people like that, like, like, and they would be like, they would be there for him. And if you're a fan of film and you don't find that inspiring, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that kind of dedication is not something that happens very often. Uh, Aaron, I totally cut you off. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, it's okay. I was I wanted to talk a little bit about how ahead of the curve he was because I, I, this cannot be stressed enough. Me probably being more older than some of you, it's just that my genetics hide it. <laughs> uh, it's like <laughs> it, it, I, I really can't say enough. Like Nemesis, 1991 or 1992. I you know Two. I I don't you don't get to the Matrix without Nemesis. Like you know it was. I mean, yeah, it came out the same year as Terminator 2 and mostly was relegated to direct-to-video after a box office run. Um, but, it, the, like, you know, there's footage of John Woo directing action on the making of Face Up that's really extraordinary because of the way he's setting up cameras and angles to multiply coverage in ways that cut together is just, like, you, you look at it and you're like, wow, there's maybe, like, 10 directors in the world that can do this with their mind. and And it's like... We know that Albert was very vocal about how many of his films were taken away from him in editing, and yet the action in them still always, even if we, there's different versions of Cyborg, it cuts together so beautifully well. It's so amazingly shot. Um, he just was ahead of the curve on an Eastern influence that was going to come into Western filmmaking. And I, I think this actually even goes back to his roots. He talks about how he was Hawaiian, you know, and, and a military brat, moved around a lot. But he said that uh, where he grew up in Hawaii, and I'm forgetting specifically what town or island it was, had a Toho cinema that showed Japanese films. And he didn't speak Japanese, but his dad would take him to see these movies. And so, you know, he saw Lone Wolf and Cub, the the, the original Japanese versions. He has a memory, like a, you know, a, a childhood memory of seeing those movies, original, uncut, just burning into his mind. And, you know, for all the... Ed Wood talk about him too. I, I want to mention that uh, the start of his career was he made a short film at 18, the Toshiro Mifune, like fucking, you know, Akira Kurosawa's number one, like leading man saw and was like, you're a born filmmaker. And he wanted him to intern for him. And he was going to work on Kurosawa's Dersu Zala as, as Mifune's assistant. And then Mifune backed out of that movie. He didn't want to spend a year in Siberia with Kurosawa. Um, and then he ended up, going to Tokyo and working uh, with Mifune on some TV shows and then kind of taken under the wing of a uh, cinematographer. I think it's Taiko Saito. I may be saying that wrong, but it was Kurosawa's cinematographer and learned he, you know, he talks really poetically in this one interview. I can't remember the exact words, but just how he learned about how to compose one image in a frame and what the tone and the emotion would be set by, by creating an image. And so the dude had an upper tier education. Uh, you know, a, a real, like, you know, I always talk about cinema as a continuum that gets passed down from filmmaker to filmmaker. And along those lines, you know, you can say his, his, his action style, like when he really got the resources was ahead of the curve. But then you look at all the people who worked with him, like, uh, you know, everybody here knows Chad Stileski, the director of the John Wick movies, co-founder of 8711 Action Design, which has dominated American action filmmaking for the past 15 years. He got his SAG card, I think Nemesis 2 or Heat Seeker. Does anybody remember which it's, one? I think it's Nemesis uh, 2. Nemesis it? 2, yeah. And that's he's, he's in the rubber suit flying yeah. off of buildings. And stuff. He, he gets an on-screen <laughs> credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gets an on-screen credit and then... 
this is actually where they kissed from there. They springboard to uh, <laughs> Bloodsport 2, which is where basically Bloodsport 2 is kind of the movie where 8711 is born. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a because that's where he meets Bernhardt. So, yeah, I mean, Albert Pune is literally responsible for the creation of 8711. Right. And, and for, for anyone for anyone listening really quickly, it, the clip has gone around multiple times. I posted it. Justin, you posted it. But if anyone's wondering who Chad is in, in the Nemesis movies, the clip that's going around of a rubber suited man falling off of a building, getting shot as he's falling and then exploding. That's Chad. And it's like it's such an incredible stunt. And Pune was doing it for nothing. It's like the clip is insane because it's the hero falling (laughs) backwards. There's a a man on top of her, and she shoots through the man as she falls (laughs) on fire. Yeah, on fire. And then the rubber suited man is on top of them as he falls because then they (laughs) crash through an awning, and the rubber suited monster like is impaled and explodes when it hits the ground. It's an exa- and, and that's the thing too about Nemesis is like the the stunt coordinators I've met and spoken to they all know Nemesis and there is a scene in Nemesis that also ends up on social media. It's thirty seconds where um, Olivier Grunier, you know, there have been gags like this similar in the movies, but the way it's executed in Nemesis, machine guns. There's a beautiful thing in the movie Nemesis where every bullet, because it's the future, is like an explosive round and does 10 times more damage than any movie you've ever seen before. (laughs) From start to finish, every pistol is like a a 12-gauge shotgun at point blank. And they carve these holes, like Looney Tunes style, that villains pop out of. And then he shoots his machine gun in a circle in the floor and drops down. And the camera's mounted with him falling through multiple floors. In one take, they break it up, but it's it's such an astounding stunt technically. I mean, like, you know, stunt professionals know that scene. They know that movie and they've been referring to it. And it's like almost impossible to even pull off stuff like that these days. I mean, when Weissman ripped it off wholesale for Underworld. Yeah, badly, just, badly. Yeah. badly. <laughs> like, yeah. look, look, and I actually am a defender of the Underworld movies. And, and I understand we have filmmakers on this show. So I don't want to, you know, Aaron, I don't want to mess with you. <laughs> Glad we love you, but but nonetheless, like he does it with one tenth the creativity that Albert does it in Nemesis. I mean, there's just no no question about it. It looks and probably twenty times the budget. You know, yeah. Uh, Underworld was pretty uh, low budget, but yeah, like when you watch a scene, the way that Albert shoots it, like there's so much debris flying up, and like Aaron said, what really sells that scene is like, and you watch a shot, you're like, how did they do this? Is uh. Olivier, the hero, just falling through the floors as the camera's looking up at him. He's like, oh, <laughs> so you really get that like vertical space instead of just like cutting to like a stunt double just falling to the next yeah. floor. He he explodes a, an entire uh, what's it called? A t- like a tanker truck, like flips it up on its back and it explodes it. And it's like he's doing that in 92 for no money. And then, you know, Nolan does that in Dark Knight like years and years later and it's almost the same exact stunt it's just it's incredible i mean i don't know if nolan has, has ever seen nemesis but i'd like to think that maybe he has. i bet I he mean, has. looking I at the b-movie <laughs> cast of dark knight maybe yeah yeah i mean it's just it's wild when you go back and look at pune's stuff it's like his fingerprints are everywhere and it's just i you know like i said earlier i just wish that he had been able to see more of the love when he was around and I'm glad he got to see it a little bit. I know, um, Mike, you, you remember this, that one night organically for no reason, all of us on, yeah. Nemesis night, all of us on action Twitter just put on nemesis for no reason. And just 
I think it was Billy. I think Billy Jarrett may have been the one that started it, you know, yeah. watching it. And then you started watching it. And then I was like, well, fuck, now I got to watch Nemesis. And then like, yeah, I mean, that was actually really the night that action Twitter was born, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I love that it made its way to Facebook and and he was so pleased by that, that that really made me happy. Yeah, I just. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, I, it's just you know, I know we're we're processing his loss in real time, but also I, I'm over here like processing his enormity in real time too, because as you guys mentioned, like I didn't know about his history with the, knowing Toho. No, we're you know working with those legends. What did we lose? Japanese cinema. And so I, I could like it, in my in, huh? Well, yeah, like in my head, you know, like uh, when I think of Cyborg, Cyborg is. The first the North Star movie, but the better one than the one they made, you know. And like, and like, and it's like, oh, this guy, like, well, I mean, to me as a neophyte, like, it's anime to me, but like, I, now I see the roots much deeper than that. This is, you know, just anime. Like, he was doing this, like, I don't know, I don't know what you want to call it, crossover melding stuff, decades before it is even a concept. You know, decades before Yun Wu Ping was, or years before he was, Yun Wu Ping was doing Matrix. And so, like, yeah, I, I see that, but also like. We just went to a few minutes ago about the uh, the the black movies, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This same guy who has this background with one of the masters of cinema was also doing black exploitation, like like these movies that you mentioned, like the business, whatever. Silk the Shocker, I see. This is like some black shit. Like this is like black guy movies, and like I thought <laughs> that was him. Like, but you know, like, and these are the kind of movies that you know, like, well, well it's how to explain this. So when I was in the, first in the army early 2000s, you know, I'm from New York, so, like, I hadn't really had a lot of um, cultural exchange, quote-unquote, with other, like, Southern um, Black people. It's a whole different country, a whole different culture, a whole different, like, country almost. Like, first of all, I'm a Caribbean-based, um, and, like, it's, like, a whole different world. And I see they have, they, they, these guys, they would love these, like, these, like, bad hood movies, but, like, like <laughs> because they didn't see them anywhere else. They didn't see these people that they knew in any other kind of mainstream media like that. So, yeah, and just to see that Albert, like, you know, I see one of like the, the, the maybe the godfather of uh, of rappers doing movies, you know, like he, you know, he, he, Mean Guns. I saw that not knowing it was Albert Pune. That shit is gangster as fuck. And that, that was like during IC's like yo come up and screw his prime, you know, Judgment Night into that to survive the game like that. Like he was already on the pulse of you know the the urban demographic. So then <laughs> and you have like like that that was like ninety seven. Then you have the, those those that bad trilogy in, in the early two thousands. But this is before, you know, this is before uh, Romeo Must Die. This is before Exit Wounds. This is before Cradle to the Grave. He was already on that vibe. And I didn't even realize this shit. Like, before the, the Joe Silver and it was like, hey, what if Kung Fu for Black people? He was, he'd been doing that shit. <laughs> this is like, right, this is amazing right. to realize this shit now. Like, in, in, and sadly, and again, in hindsight, but like, no, this is like his his reach and his goes so much deeper than, yeah, he, he created 7-Eleven, quote unquote. Or he, 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 he like, Helped push along the uh, what I call like the uh, modern next gen, next gen black exploitation movies, you know, Belly and so forth, New Jack City. He's part of that move too. This is this is this is insane that he he has his hands in all these these movements of the American cinema. He was always like five years too early, and because he did them so inexpensively, uh, people tend to forget that he made them. Even. They may have kind of like been absorbed in, you know, the popular consciousness. Like you'd see it at a blockbuster. I remember seeing there'd be like the, the, his urban trilogy was all over video stores. Like it's wild how many copies that they had, but 
I think people would look at it and go, oh, that is the kind of minor version of that. Now let's do it with a budget and not actually give him any opportunities to participate in it because he already did his version and his budgets will continue to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink until his budgets are literally zero. On that, on that, on that tip, uh, vice. Wait, I'm I'm giving him way too much credit for this, but I just find this amusing. Is like 1981's Sword and the Sorcerer, his very first movie. Um, look, if you watch that now, I, I was actually surprised. I did not realize until I went back to research a little bit. I, I thought it was a Conan the Barbarian knockoff, but no, it was something he planned for four years and even made it into theaters before Conan the Barbarian. It was an Justin. Excalibur uh, ripoff in the sense that that's how it was allowed to get made. That Excalibur was such a huge hit that producers were looking for, okay, do we have any other sword and sorcery stuff? And he had been like hitting the pavement for four years in Hollywood with a big stack of storyboards. So you can find some of them online of Sword and the Sorcerer. And he's like, this is the movie I want to make. And he and his friends were all involved in it. That's the thing about Albert is that like he had no connections when he came to Hollywood. He was just with his pals who he worked with a lot in his earlier films. Uh, one of them produced all of his films up until the Urban Trilogy. And then he went on to produce Ryan Johnson's film, including like Last Jedi and even the Knives Out films. Wait, who's uh, that? Uh, I don't have his name in front of me. It's like oh, Tom. Wow. Tom uh, Janowski. I, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I remember from the credits. But I want to say about the Sorcerer, and I'm giving him way too much credit. But, and, and maybe it's just like the low-budget circumstances made under. I mean, look, you watch that movie now, and uh, there is only a certain degree of pretentiousness that separates it from Game of Thrones. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a, it's an extraordinary – I mean, it's a barbarian you know, sword and sorcerer movie where uh, it's all about lineages and kings and who's going to inherit this kingdom with with gratuitous uh, violence and, and nudity. Uh, so there is no difference to Game of Thrones with me. It has an astounding uh, feel of there's an enormous world off screen that very few filmmakers can do. Like, you know, George Lucas is one of the few who can do it. But Sword of the Sorcerer cracks me up because there's more black people in that movie than all of season one through eight of Game of Thrones, like in the background. And they're just random soldiers. There's no lead part. I'm not going to give him that. There is a sorceress who's, who's a black woman. <laughs> but but he is ahead of Game of Thrones on HBO 20 years later. He, in terms he was of also... He's also ahead of them in that he knew how to light his movie <laughs> and show you all the cool shit. On like, and, and also he has the triple blade sword. Um, oh, so yeah. cool! Yeah, yeah. okay. Very well, Aaron. The, as you know, you wrote one of one of the great like swords, <laughs> essentially uh, in movies. And, and yes, uh, the triple blade sword and sword of the sorcerer is as good as it gets. I'm going to say Game of Thrones does not have a triple blade sword that also should we, I don't know if we should give away how amazing it is, but it does. Something I mean, it happens screen. within the first 10 minutes. It's also a rocket sword <laughs> that shoots the sword out of it. And you I, watch I mean, the sword of the sorcerer, like from his first film. And I think this is what separates Albert's filmography from a lot of filmmakers. He genuinely loves this stuff. Like most yes. filmmakers, when they would make fantasy films, they're like, oh, I guess I'm making Hawk the Slayer. I don't know. Throw the silly stuff out there. Well, Albert's like, no, no, no. I love this. I'm like, I love all the Frank Frazetta covers. I love like Fritz Lieber's novels. I just want to bring it to the screen in the way no one has seriously done it. Cause they're like, oh, this is kid stuff. 
And I think Sword and the Sorcerer, as fun as it is, it's also kind of like what defined his working style because it was such a huge hit and he had so much difficulty on the set. Like, if you look at interviews, everyone who worked on that film was like, I actually directed that film. And it's like, what are you talking about? You watch Sword and the Sorcerer and like it's Albert from end to end. It even starts with a Brandon Chase film who was the producer of the film. It's one of the most egregious thefts I've ever seen creatively. The yeah. start of a film, a blank film, and then directed <laughs> by somebody else. Um, and, and and like I say, no matter how compromised these films were, they all have a very specific, unique tone, and that movie mm-hmm. has it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's you watch that movie, and you're just like, I, I, I might be getting this wrong, but he was he attached to the He-Man movie because. Or was he supposed, or or did he just work within those sets at some point? Because he, he was attached Sword- to the He-Man movie. Yeah, you watch Sword and the Sorcerer, and you're like, "That's the guy to make He-Man." He would have mm-hmm. built that entire world out, and it just—it's so, it yeah, it's just a huge missed opportunity. I'll do it as quickly as possible, but the He-Man story is hilarious because he was working for Canon at the time, and he somehow convinced Canon that he could shoot a Spider-Man movie, and he would shoot the first <laughs> part with Puny Parker. And then they would take a break and the actor could bulk back up. And then he, in that break, he would shoot a He-Man film. And then he would finish the Spider-Man movie. Using and, some of the same sets, right? Like Yes. Yeah. And what ended up happening was... What Tom Hanks would later do for fucking Castaway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Again, now we're being ahead of the curve. <laughs> and, and what ended up happening was, I don't know if there was like a rights issue that came up at the time, but like something reared its ugly head. And so he spun around and he made Cyborg on some of the sets that they were supposed to use for his He-Man Masters of the Universe film. <laughs> yeah, even uh, uh, um, Vincent, like the, I'm forgetting the actor's name is so rad, the, the antagonist in Cyborg, the chainmail suit he's wearing was supposed to be Skeletor's, you know. But the best part of it all is just two that, that gets downplayed about him. His strength as a writer. Apparently he wrote Cyborg in 48 hours, you know, mm-hmm. like wow. uh, on, on where this whole deal collapsed, the, the, the Masters of the Universe movie collapsed. And so he had to run a movie in a weekend so they could shoot something on Monday. And uh, that's fucking incredible. Like, I'm sorry, but it is. Have you guys heard the original uh, music for Cyborg? Because yes. his original intent was that he wanted it to be in black and white. And the the <laughs> score, which is made, and you can find a version of the movie with the score by Tony Ripperetti, who was like his main guy Tony, right up until... Love fucking Tony. Tony is one of the most unsung fucking... Unsung. I interviewed him and he was like, no one's really ever asked me about these movies before. And I'm like, that is wild. You did like 30 (laughs) scores for these films. And like the cyborg score is like, damn. It's almost like sludge metal in the way that it plays. (laughs) And uh, you can find it for people listening. You can find it. uh, There is a both a Spanish and a German version. It's called the Slinger Cut. That's what you want to look for. And it's, it's not... It's not great in terms of just simply because I have the Spanish one um, because they're using like V8 third generation. V8. Yeah, the, mo- the like the work print edit of the movie. Yeah, yeah uh, but it does have it does have Tony's score and it, it's a totally different vibe. 
You can find the score if you just search uh, Slinger and his name. It'll just pop up. Someone posted like some tracks from it. It's been released by like boutique music uh, companies. But what happened was they did a test screening and uh, Sheldon Lettich, the director of a bunch of Jean-Claude Van Damme films, and his best friend was like, what is this? And he <laughs> called Jean-Claude Van Damme. He's like, you got to get here. This is horrible. You got to come and re-edit. And that's why Cyborg was taken out of his hands. And the score was redone by a guy who's, I don't think he did any other score. <laughs> like, and it's like a little. Doo, 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 doo. Like, it's all, it's all MIDI synth music. Yeah. yeah. It, like like think, 80s. Vibe. I think what, and what's you, so. Sorry, go ahead, Brandon. Oh, no, just really quickly, just on the cyborg thing. Um, I, I forget it was only two minutes ago, but whoever mentioned that he wrote it in 48 hours. Um, I think that's a testament to his brilliance because I couldn't find the quote before we started, but I read a quote a while back where he, he talked about how post-apocalyptic stuff and cyborg stuff didn't particularly interest him it was just mm -hmm. a good way to get his ideas across and it's so wild because you hear a quote like that but then you see and and then you find out cyborg was written in 48 hours but then you watch the movie and there, there's a whole world to it he he made this entire like world he it's just funny i guess what the point i'm trying to make is that for someone who didn't particularly care about that genre like or subgenre or whatever you want to call it he was so good at it it's just yeah it's wild yeah. I think well, that he may have come in reaction to him like directing eight of these cyborg movies, <laughs> and he's like, "Please stop asking me to make these films." And he, and, and he has a few quotes where he's sincere about what he likes about. I mean, part of it's the pragmatic of production. It's like he he said, you know, locations. You could use a shitty one down location. You don't need a permit for. You could trash it because it's already trash. Uh, but creatively, he also talked about how it spoke to him. I look. I think anybody. As an older person, like growing through the 80s, like nuclear holocaust was a very viable present thing in our subconscious. And he talks about how it uh, allowed, I can't remember the exact quote, but I found an old interview with him where he talks about how it enabled him to make movies that were set in this kind of emotional landscape where, you know, doom and change were on the horizon, but he was trying to find a, a way to be hopeful through it. And, and that's this thing we were talking about earlier. And I also, this version of Cyborg you're, you're speaking of, I, I do remember him specifically talking about how he wanted to make a metalhead rock opera. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that's the version. And and look, that's that's what Mandy is by Panos's definition. And that's how inspired we were by 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 Cyborg. It's like you know the attempt to make. There, there's the second film he made is Radioactive Dreams, which we could get into. Uh, this is a good segue for it, but it's kind of a rock opera in its own way. And and there's this recurring theme, I think, through his whole career too, to just like make a movie that has a great buzz about like having the radio on with awesome rock music playing and cyborgs, mutants, and super hot people are running around <laughs> doing cool <laughs> shit. And that's what I love. You sort of have a little bit of a trilogy because you have radioactive dreams, you have vicious lips, and then you have, and Justin, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, and then you have the, what would have been, you know, cyborg, the slinger kind of cyborg. And they're all basically kind of rock operas. And, mm -hmm. And it's and even dangerously close, which isn't I wouldn't call it a rock opera, but the the music selections. I mean, it was so very obvious that Albert cared so much about music in his movies. Oh yeah, his editor said that um, Albert, like in the middle of an editing session, would take him out to his car and he like popped his trunk and he had like hundreds of tapes and he's like, oh, I'm I'm inspired by this and this and this <laughs> and this. Like if you listen to the score for Radioactive Dreams, like none of those bands went anywhere, but like Albert was just like tuned in to this specific kind of music and that's why he kind of lathers all of his movies in them. Yeah, it, it, and there's 
the soundtrack for Radioactive Dreams is so unbelievably complimentary. Like it, it is a perfect meld of movie. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect that he like stops the movie dead at one point to show a full on performance. That's like it lasts for a long time and it never feels like it's dragging the movie down because this band I've never heard of is awesome. And she's singing about guilty pleasures, which yeah. which makes it even more awesome. And it's just like, yeah, it's pure joy. It's so cool. And I, I just like radioactive dreams. If there's anything like, look, we, we could try to advocate for, there's a 35 millimeter print of that movie. Uh, it's been shown a few times. Agfa has version, it. Agfa has it? Okay. Yeah. Like if, if it's in the you American Genre Agfa, Film Archive. Ring them up and be like, hey, can we run Radioactive Dreams? That's what we did. But we need to transfer it so people can see it. Like, I, yeah. you know, I've only yeah. ever seen it. I've only ever seen it in a cropped. It's it's anamorphic oh. widescreen. It's so beautiful only on that 35 millimeter print. The colors destroyed, and you see still photographs, and the color on set is so beautiful and luscious, mm-hmm. that 80s vibe and sheen. Like, um, and it's just like if you ever wanted to see a movie where George Kennedy uses a grenade launcher and gives a life lesson about like let's not hang on to the regrets of the past and keep oh. moving on. I, I <laughs> love so beautiful. Dreams. I don't want to spoil it, but like that ending is so moving, and it's literally the ending of Last Jedi, where like the two characters. <laughs> Are like looking like who are we what do we mean like where do we come from and then finally they find the person they've been looking for the whole time the guy's like what difference does it make go on with your life <laughs> every time how I it see, ends. every time i see rightfully every time i see streets of fire love on twitter i'm just like wait till you guys see radioactive dreams mm. because it's like such a complimentary movie to streets of fire and i just it really deserves some kind of restoration i just and- it i I have a bad bootleg of it. And yeah, I'm I'm uh, uh, yeah. never going to advocate bootlegs on this channel, but Sloppy Second Sales has a very as nice of a bootleg as you could possibly get. Um because that's the exact one I have. Yeah. Yeah. You we can't find it anywhere. There's literally been, I think there was a Spanish DVD. The, uh I think it was a German DVD. German and it came with the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just it, to me, it's it's such an un believable ridiculous tragedy that 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 we can't get like i i I think the rights are just very tangled because there was a lot of like independent uh financiers and like the bond company took over before the movie was done like it, it it screened uh, on the MGM HD channel yeah. many, many years ago, yeah. Yeah. which made me think that, like, oh, does MGM own it? But I think it may be a situation that perhaps whoever owns it just doesn't care to distribute it, and, and that's what why it's never been released. And that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna actually shout out Vinegar Syndrome because if you could figure out how to make fucking New York Ninja, you can figure out how to get. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wonder if it's like they look at it and go, eh, it's probably not that big of an audience for it. Like, is that what it is? Like, gotta be, right? it? because I mean, I mean, there is shit, right? These boutique labels are releasing shit that is so obscure. Yeah. You know, I mean, Justin, you literally own a boutique label that, <laughs> yeah. shit that is so obscure, but I know you're like a one man shop, so I don't expect you to be able to get radioactive dreams. But uh, no, I mean, like uh, <laughs> they released um, Alien from L.A. And I think that like that makes sense only because it's an MST3K film. So yeah. like people know it automatically and they're like, oh, maybe wow. I'll check that out. But like, there's so many of, especially like 90s films that uh, Pune made that like companies in Germany have released them. Like Knights is supposedly in some 
bananas legal quagmire in that like a German company was going to release it as a widescreen Blu-ray and then that got canceled and it's like scrubbed from YouTube as well. Like you would think it'd be up there someone, but someone's sending takedown notices. So it's like all of its films because they were financed and such, you know, all over the way place. It's difficult, I think, for people to grab them, give the time and effort and money it would take to put them out. As much as I think these movies deserve to be seen, there's something very like almost pune like about how just a bunch of like freaks on Twitter are like, Hey, how do I see nights? And then like someone mm-hmm. will DM you and be like, here, don't tell anybody. Here's like <laughs> a, and it's just like, it's such a fun way to kind of explore his movies because he, he feels like one of the last filmmakers you can kind of do that with. And of course I'd rather have these all pristine out there for everyone to see, but I do love like that, that happened to me. Like I, I was trying to find nights. I couldn't find it anywhere. And someone, one of my followers is just like, Hey, here you go. Like, don't share this anywhere. And it was just like really <laughs> just like such a lovely way to discover things. It's just it, like people coming together and it's like sharing tapes back in the day. I, I still have I still have so I still have my laser disc player and a bunch of laser discs. And part of the reason for that is quite frankly, Heat Seeker. Uh, because a Heat Seeker has only had a couple of semi-decent releases and and so i have still have my i have my kickboxer 2 and my heat seeker laser discs and uh i i feel like watching albert on laser disc is maybe the most albert shit <laughs> oh, i bought ravenhawk on later on laser disc just because it's the only way to watch it letterboxed until someone sent me a widescreen. He's like, I find this on the like the Spanish DVD, which I've never <laughs> even heard of before, and it's in widescreen. And that one's an HBO film too, so it ain't never gonna get Why released. Why Spain getting all the cool shit? Every time yeah, one of know. these comes up, it's like, oh, it's on a right. Spanish DVD. <laughs> you, you know what? The rights, uh, the people who own the rights are like, huh? What? Eh, we don't care what happens down there. <laughs> yeah, it's always, but, if people listening want to know, like, if you're trying to find a movie, go to Spain and go to Germany. They will very likely have like Blu-ray versions of them because I don't know. Yeah, I guess they don't. That's how I found Brain Smasher, the, the German Blu-ray of that's beautiful. Oh. oh, so good. Yeah. The media book, it's like, which cover do you want? We got seven yeah. of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, labor of love. I, I, I got to say about what Brandon was saying, there is a super beautiful aspect to that. And that sometimes... Like I, I, I'm guilty of it. I love putting a fragment of a really obscure movie on 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 social media. But sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, you gotta you gotta sit through the whole movie to get that thirty seconds of like you know ecstasy that just is is mind blowing. You can't get anywhere else. And I I do want to like you know I, I love the idea that we're keeping these movies alive by sharing them personally. But at the same time, like when you look at the Vinegar Syndrome restoration of Alien from L.A. and, and even the Blu-ray of Cyborg, like how good they look i mean like oh, i remember when so I, good like his movies photographically i mean you George we, we Moravia, all talked about it who shot like almost all of his films is like yeah. an amazing cinematographer and like he never got the respect that he deserved everyone's talking about how great the lighting is movies and that is a collaboration with his cinematographer and his lighting crews but it's like they all look really really good and and uh, you know, in particular, there, there's just this beautiful thing. He really knows how to shoot people. Very few people know how to shoot like movie stars, much less B movie stars. And I found this quote. It was Dennis Chan from Kickboxer 2 talking about how, um, you know, the relationship you can have as an actor with a director. Dennis is like, Albert's very 
soft-spoken. He doesn't give me a lot of feedback. And so I wondered for the longest time what he thought of me. Like, I didn't know if I was doing a good job, if he approved of me. And then one day, you know, he, he went to shoot a close-up of me and there were three cameras, two of them high speed aimed at my face. And then I realized, oh, you do like me. And that, and, that, <laughs> and beyond that, though, there's something huge there, which is just like the care he would shoot for, uh, actors with just for single close-ups. Like, he, he makes people so extraordinarily beautiful. Um, and because we're watching such deteriorated bootleg versions, like I, we're, we're, we're getting like 10% of the full effect of just how beautiful his films are. And that's kind of the tragedy to me. It's why I, I'd really love to see some of these like restored and, and hopefully, you know, his, 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 his Cynthia Kern and his wife has been advocating for that, but hopefully, you know, us talking about it, other people talking about it that night on Twitter, the nemesis blew up. I hope it just contributes to yeah, so, some money because these movies, the rights can be really tangled, but it's not that expensive to get the rights to some of these. And no, if a company was like, we really want to release radioactive dreams, like they'd figure it out. Like if they made yeah. it a priority, like if you can do sword and the sorcerer, which was a wild tangled rights issue, you can do radioactive dreams. Well, and we're talking totally. about a lot of his, a lot of his older work, but I think I haven't seen a lot of his newer stuff, but um, I think his ability to shoot people like movie stars still extended to that period because, you know, this podcast uh, always talks about hooking actors up. And I think he does that perfectly in something like, uh, why am I forgetting the name? Road to Hell, the the very weird sequel to Streets of Fire that <laughs> like no one knows exists, but he sh like that movie is what it is. I, I can't say it's good, but he shoots Michael Pare in that movie like he's the biggest movie star on earth. And it's great like, Michael Pare performance. Yeah. Like it, just like sad and lonely in this kind of let's be honest, hellish movie where you're yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> it's green screen to hell. It has like such well, a tenuous connection to And he's literally movie. in hell. Like the yeah, sky yeah, is just the yeah. desert <laughs> and just like flaming red skies the entire time. But but he shoots him like he's like like I, I can't I'm, I'm like blanking on any movie star right now for no reason but he just shoots him like he's the biggest star on earth and you and this go, goes back to alien from la too there's shots of kathy ireland in that movie where you're like if, if you didn't know any better you would think she was like the biggest movie star on the planet back then meanwhile she you know got mocked for that movie for years but um but he just he he made like you said he just there, there's so much care put into those movies and just really quickly i wanted to backtrack to how good his movies look there are matte paintings and cyborg nemesis and alien from LA that are just like some of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen ever. And I'm just like, I, it's such a shame that like only now are they being rediscovered because like th some of those matte paintings could be hanging in a museum. There's a one that I post a lot and I, I'll probably post it again. Uh, uh, there's a matte in alien from LA. That's just like a shot of the city, the, the underground city. That's just like, I can't believe that exists in a, in yeah, a movie that like yeah. for years I was told was bad. It's just it's insane. Cyborg is like I introduced a print of it, a thirty-five millimeter print of it, um, at, at Draft House in Brooklyn, and I, I remember on the spot I was like, "This this movie, like you know, look, some of you are going to go into this with preconceptions, but I have to say, visually, this movie, it's like if Terrence Malick was a glue huffing Hesher, like this is the movie <laughs> he would have made, and maybe it's because they didn't have the money for." But the lighting, like Cyborg, there's there's sequences on the beach with natural lighting. There's a, a very well-known crucifix scene. There's a rad scene with Van Damme doing the splits in a hallway with like such angular, stark contrast that digital cinematography is not even getting close to. Like, it's just a visual 
beast. It's it's so killer. I, and I can't, you know, for anybody who, who hasn't watched in a long time, go watch Cyborg. Try to tune out that, like, the plot is very simple and just get into the vibe and the atmosphere and the feeling and the look of it. And it's just, you know, and, and even though it's not his director's cut, there's something really extraordinary about that movie that's so unique that that no $200 million production could ever come close to achieving. Like the the same emotional feel. If you I, I love that you just brought that up, Aaron, because that's the thing that I love about Pune. If if I had one word to describe Pune, it's vibes. He is a vibes filmmaker. If you want, like, if you're going in and you're looking for like traditional, very basic filmmaking techniques, he ain't your guy. Uh, <laughs> but if you just want a vibe and just go with the vibes he's he's such a vibes filmmaker and, and i love those vibes um you know i i will uh i justin wanted to say something so i'm going to kick it over to him but i i'm going to come back i want to come back and talk about heat seeker i will not get out of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> here let me jump in because like so it's kind of funny as you guys are all talking and kind of waxing uh scholastic about his work um, on my screen, um, my other t- uh, my other computer screen, I'm watching the trailers in IMDb of all his movies and suddenly, and I just just I have the sound off. I'm just looking at them. When you just mentioned Road to Hell, it looks like what Robert Rodriguez would have been, would have been doing. And then, you, but you can see like this is like that the framing of like who these people are. You know, we talking about the, making these actors pretty. Like these guys, look, these guys look amazing. But I, I have no idea who they are. I've never seen these people before in my life, <laughs> but they look so cool. But uh, then, like you know, uh, and I just uh, as I'm looking to his filmography as we start speaking, uh, Rachel McLish, Ravenhawk, mm-hmm. holy shit! What? That's one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life in a movie. And like that's like if 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 I was an alien alien that came down to Earth and like found this movie, I'd be like, this must be the greatest uh, acting woman in the universe uh, <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> on this planet here. Like the way he hooks her up, like first of all, just like, and this is. I don't like to say like you know nowadays shit sucks or whatever whatever, but like you know, there's no big women like that. Like no, there's like muscular women like that in movies ever. People are scared of that shit, or whatever. He was just like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna do it." Because look at look at what I have in front of me. How could I not make a movie with this person? And he fucking did it, you know. Like, and this capturing this as I'm seeing these clips of his work, he's like, I don't know how to explain it. Like he's like capturing this I don't know natural unnatural beauty of stuff. Um, I'm not really being the screen screen stuff, but even then, like the people in it making it real, like you know, yeah. the, the, this is a very, this is a very distinct essence that a lot of filmmakers don't have, and you know, to the to the point, a lot of the current ones certainly don't. I can think of very few, maybe like Kugler, for example. And we would, oh, we did, uh, recently we did our Wakanda Forever in, uh, review, and, you know, like it's kind of funny. We were saying, you know, um, why is it? Lupita Nyong'o doing Black Panther because look at the material you have with her to boost her up as the guest. This is a movie star, and he's just, this guy's making movie stars out of you know nobody, so quote unquote. But like, like that's a very, that's a this is a very distinct skill that not many people who people who should have this skill don't, and yet they have they make these sorts of adult movies. You know, this is crazy. I it's mean, like, it's oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, oh sorry, it, it's like you know. uh 
look, you can look back at some of his films and definitely like they are made in a different era in terms of uh, sexuality on screen. In some ways, tragically absent, but also, yeah, it's exploitative. You know, Swords and Sorcerer has an extraordinary amount of female nudity. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I would argue, though, the way he just... Like you can tell he takes care on these close-ups of actresses. And there's just a recurring theme in his movies where, you know, in a lot of 80s and 90s movies, women are often put in precarious situations where they're going to be prey. And and in, in Pion's movies, they almost always knee somebody in the balls and get away. <laughs> like he actually seems to really like not want to go completely there. Uh, but the way he photographs them with such care is so mythical in a way like people these days are shot on digital in such harsh ways and also what you're talking about in terms of physicality every actor is working with the same like you know athletic scientists to produce the same physiques like everybody has the same body now but, but there's just something about the way he shot the human form over the decades of his work that's really cool that you're talking about by ic2 yes yeah, albert Jackson. loved strong women and he loved to forefront them in his movies and in many forms he like he loved very muscular women like the nemesis sequels all-star super a price <laughs> a bodybuilder and i mean a nemesis four you see all of her she's <laughs> and jacked yeah. she is jacked <laughs> even in nemesis i don't remember the actor's name but like she's introduced oh, the dude, one... like by the yeah. window and she's a cyborg so there's like this yeah it's, it's yeah, just she like strangles she's... a naked thomas jane yeah. yeah it's such a rad sequence and the nudity actually is part of it and how she her body's like an external thing she doesn't care about because she's a cyborg like yeah it's it's like and then you also stuff. have movies like spitfire that stars a real life gymnast uh deborah joe fondren who's like four feet tall but he builds this like james bondian action martial arts film around her and you can just see he's like delighted and like throwing her in a leather jacket and having her beat up like 10 guys in a hotel room well and it's it's funny that you mentioned sue price and nemesis it is kind of funny but like how from two and three she goes from like a loincloth to three just being she's like just naked the yeah. <laughs> but she's just like the most jacked woman you've ever seen and you just don't see those kind of phys phys physiques excuse me on screen anymore like vice said it, it is just like you know you look at even something like um she hulk you know a lot of people you know i mm -hmm. understandably you know they they did a, a cgi recreation of her because they did the same thing with mark ruffalo but at the same time there was a lot of people pushing for like why not just cast a, a bigger woman like a more muscular woman and and you know i i haven't seen she hulk i'm not gonna you know give any kind of thoughts here or there although i will say there as maybe silly as it might be to paint someone green would it have looked any worse than what that cgi ended or up even <laughs> make a muscular she hulk like her character yeah. is muscular canonically yeah. so even if she was cg and muscular but you can tell the producers were like well that's too uh different from what people expect in their like you know uh women-led tv shows like we don't really see muscular women yeah in action movies at all anymore just just gonna also shout out the uh axel braun uh parody where uh china played she hulk oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know you know look i actually have seen she hulk i love she hulk uh i think it's a it's actually probably the best marvel uh, since Marvel took over, not the Netflix ones, it's probably the best Marvel TV series. And Tatiana Maslany is amazing, but there is no question that 
you know, I mean, again, I'm an old. I grew up watching Lou Ferrigno painted green. Like I watched Bill Bixby turn into Lou Ferrigno <laughs> painted green. And that shit fucking worked, man. We don't necessarily need all this stuff. It, it, well, they do a parody in one of the openings of an episode and you're like, that looks good. Why don't you just do that? No. Yeah. And in fact, my, 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 yeah, my wife who's Colombian who doesn't know the original show, she's like, "Why doesn't the whole show look like this '80s retread?" <laughs> uh, this is so cool. It has such a look and a vibe. Like, yeah, and that's gone now. But Brandon, Sorry. you you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up. Right, like the theme, and and we're actually working on a new shirt that uh, we it's not released yet, but we're working on a new shirt that's going to be hook your actors up or hook your stars up, because that has become like the theme of this podcast. Thank you, Liam. And if there's one thing Albert knew how to do, uh, A, he appreciated physical beauty. He appreciated in all forms. You know, he didn't have one single idea, but he appreciated shapes and and composition. And, and he knew how to hook people up. Like, this dude turned Sasha fucking Mitchell into a martial arts superstar, right? Like, Yeah, the dude know, from Step by Step. I, I got to <laughs> I, I gotta come back a little bit because, like you know, we're talking about Albert Pune as a foundational or foundational love. Uh, like to get the motherfucker Cody from the AVC sitcom, who it turns out was in fact I remember the tangent. Oh my god, I'm sorry. That was the TV show is called Step by Step. He was cousin Cody. He was like slightly kind of like this like a uh, surfer dude slash bumpkin all in one to this like prim proper like suburban white family. And then like, but then there's one episode <laughs> where the daughter, the, the prim daughter gets like in trouble with like the bugger gang. So here comes Slacker Cody. And he does this like dope ass, like full on action sequence. He keeps the guy's asses. And I was like, what did it come from? Then I did I then do HBO, of course. I found he was in Kickbuster 2. And I was like, oh, this guy's legit. But like, but like, you know, <laughs> nobody, you I think like like people like Albert Pune, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, no one else would think out of the box like that. To capitalize on what these what these movie stars, these actors can actually do, that their full range of talents, and he found them like like that, you know, like like that's again like is is that the that discernment of how knowing how to shoot, how to display someone, but also the discernment of how to use them properly, use them for all their talents, all their skills, you know, and that yeah, that's just again we we have so little little of that and uh, ever since. I do want to just because people will remind us because we 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 do have a theme here. Uh, yes, Sasha, Sasha Mitchell has uh, not been the best human being on the face of the earth. Oh, yes, yeah. And so yeah, if you Google that, you will find that. But nonetheless, Hewn yeah. hooks him up. I mean, literally the scene in Kickboxer Two where it's the last fight and Dennis Chan's like, "Now go kick this guy's ass so we can go home," and he bends over and he's like. Tell you what, champ, take your best shot. Like the way Pune hooks that up. I am one of the people that actually thinks as much as I love Kickboxer, I think Kickboxer 2 is a better movie. I think uh, Kickboxer 2. Yes. I love Kickboxer 2. And when you watch it, knowing that Pune made it, it's literally like an auteurist kind of examination of how does he keep making movies? Because the film is about like uh, Sasha Mitchell's character is like destroyed and then he has to somehow find the strengths, not to just have a final fight, but just to get out of bed in the morning. Like the bulk of the film is about that because the film kind of posits like, oh, he's a great fighter. He doesn't want to do it anymore. 
And he just needs to realize, okay, I have to go and do this thing. Kind of like Albert has to go make movies. And what's great about Kickboxer too is like that final fight, Albert shoots it like a passion of the Christ. Like just Sasha Mitchell just getting like battered in slow motion and like blood splattering all over the place. And you can tell he like figured out, all right, this is the approach I want to take to these action scenes. And he executes them in a way that I feel like people who saw the original, you know, very fun, goofy, uh, David Worth. Did David Worth direct Kickboxer? Uh, or did he do Bloodsport? Uh, no, uh, uh, David Worth technically directed uh, Bloodsport. Mark DeSalle directed. Uh, Mark DeSalle, yeah. And that one's really goofy and fun. The reality is they're both Sheldon Lenich. Sheldon yeah, Lenich. they're both Sheldon Lenich productions. And in Kickboxer uh, 2, you don't have that goofiness. It's essentially a drama, which when you go from the first to the second, you're like, wait, what is this? But knowing a little bit of context, which I think helps a lot of Albert films, just makes the experience that much richer. Well, in, and that's in, it's... Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. I just want to say it's covered really well in Justin's book, Radioactive Dreams. The is it the films of Albert Pugh and the cinema? Of yeah, Albert the Pugh? cinema of Albert Pugh. Yeah, but but yeah, that's where I first encountered the theory. Wow, Kickboxer Two is a straight drama about you mm-hmm. know getting up when the chips are down, and and that was like a, a new way of looking at the movie for me. Like, and, and that's why it is so rad. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Well, the other thing I love about it is you know there's this giant montage in the middle where. Uh, uh, Zan and and uh, and Sasha Mitchell, Dennis Chan and Sasha Mitchell are are working out rehabbing in the park, and all these homeless people start working out with them and start doing like Tai Chi and Kung Fu and stuff with them. And you know, Justin, I'd never thought of it, but what you just said about that being such a uh, a metaphor for Albert's career, because this whole idea is these two guys are working hard to 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 get up off the mat and they bring all these people with them the same way that albert brought you know we talked about earlier his his crew his his cast tony riveretti and and, you know and all these people that literally would walk through fire for albert pune uh that's such a a poignant moment i mean uh, yeah folks listening i cannot sing the praises of kickboxer too highly enough i i (laughs) it is I think I don't think there's a bad kickboxer movie, um, but I think Kickboxer 2 is by far and away the best of the series. I think it's an incredible movie. And it's really it's really crazy to me that, you know, Cyborg, him and Sheldon Lettich had a bad experience that they took over the editing of the movie away from him. Uh, and, and yet they hired him to direct Kickboxer too. Like there was something about Albert they still liked enough. They're like, you're a great shooter. Like, and you're good with well, actors. Go, this go is a constant movie. thing that happens over and over again. <laughs> um, like Vicious Lipped, which was basically an independent production that Albert did himself to prove that he could finish a movie after being kicked off of Radioactive Dreams. Spoiler alert, if you've seen Vicious Lips, which is very fun, he, he did not finish the movie. Uh, <laughs> it was picked up by Albert Band and distributed by Empire at the time. Sorry, Charles Band. And then (laughs) Charles Band hired him to direct Arcade and uh, Dollman. And if you guys don't know the story of Arcade, like Albert left that production to go make Nemesis. And basically (laughs) like the producers had to be like, oh, okay, we got to kind of put this together and figure it out and put a movie out there. But like, he was clearly so well-liked, like, I've never seen anybody talk about this, but I feel like Albert was like a dynamo in the room that like he would come prepared. 
He'd be excited and people would be like, oh yeah, I believe you can do this. <laughs> like I can, you can shoot this in five days, right? I, I I think the proof was in the footage too, though, because like mm. I said, it feels like his career a lot of the times is like exactly like you're saying, Joseph. It's like he would shoot the movie, he'd get into editorial, he'd get in a fight with whoever he was making the movie with. Oh yeah. Go even off Nemesis. to shoot something else. Yeah, go off to shoot something else. Yeah, even Nemesis, even the making of footage, he's he's not even in it speaking for himself. It's like um, yeah, he would go off basically to shoot another the, movie. Uh, producer of that film, I think his name is Eric Carlson who directed yeah. a bunch of Olivia Grunner films like Angel Town and a very early JCVD film, Black Eagle, was like, oh, Albert doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I need to step in, et cetera, et cetera. Which is really funny because, I, I mean, the guy seems very affable, uh, but you watch his films and they're kind of like just right. bare minimum. <laughs> Here are the goods. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, even when Albert abandoned the production, uh, his soul was baked into the footage. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how they recut it without him, it still had that quality. It's like, yeah, if I could speak on nemesis for a moment, I just, you know, I, I was such a, like, uh, I, I would like my, my, <laughs> you know, my Harry Potter was cyberpunk literature. Um, and, and there was such a run of movies in the nineties that were trying to capture what the literature was doing and none of them accomplished it. I'd say the one movie that got closest was the matrix and that took until 1999, but for a whole decade, people were trying to do it and just failing miserably. And nemesis, um, I think is extraordinary because of it's, it's like, he, he doesn't do any virtual reality bullshit. I mean, there are characters who are augmented, they're half human and half robot, and they're struggling with that in their psyche. And, and I'd like to actually make a case here that emotionally, it's really interesting. Like, he doesn't have the budget or the craziness to do all this virtual reality bullshit. So the movie's still grounded in characters who are uh, in conflict about their bodies, which aren't really their own and even their memories. It's like presaging Ghost in the Shell in so many ways. Well, like his original out. idea for Nemesis was wild. Yeah. He wanted it to be like a 14-year-old girl would be the star of the movie. And I think... And I haven't, he, I don't know if I've seen him say this, but it was going to star a guy at the beginning and then he gets blown up and his mind gets put in the body of a, like a, a young teenager. And that would be the protagonist for the rest of the movie. And because of that, it's like what he's left with. It's, it's almost like, you know, uh, to use a really contemporary thing, it's like the way Andor ditched the Star Wars that was saddling down Star Wars. Like Nemesis has this thing where it, it takes that cyberpunk genre and it ditches all the virtual reality, all the technology, and just focuses on this guy, Alex Rain's emotional journey through all this insanity and bodies being disposable and, and bullets being explosive <laughs> that, that blow up every time somebody fires a gun. But what you're left with is like, just to me, one of the most haunting, dreamlike, artful like movies that were, was dealing with those ideas. No matter how cheesy some parts are, it's just certain shots. I mean, that Alex rescues a puppy at the start of the film, and then like it cuts to there's this amazing cut to like Olivier Grunier with four percent body fat running these sand dunes with the dog grown up into a wolf, and. I'm sorry, but a dude with 4% body fat running next to a wolf is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my fucking life. Like, I don't, I don't need virtual reality. I don't need CG. I don't, I just need that. And it just fills my heart with like, you know, like rad ideas for, for what a story is and, and, and how it's making me feel. And that movie all the way through just has this really unique tone that I feel so many other copycats of the genre just, just couldn't get to. And maybe because they didn't have Albert or they were too suffused with money, you know? Yeah. 
I think that that runs through the Nemesis series, though, even as incoherent as it gets, it's just it's so daydreamy is the only way I can put it. And that's I haven't read a whole lot of cyberpunk, but that that's the main I hate to use this word all the time, but the main vibe I get from cyberpunk is that it's like hazy and daydreamy. And like, I feel like the, the nemesis movies accomplish that tone more than anything else. And like I said, they get very incoherent by the end, but, but it's still like, it feels like you're just in this future world that feels like you're like slipping in and out of consciousness. And it's, I I've never really seen any other film or film series accomplish that. And it's just in it, the jump from nemesis to nemesis two, where, like you said, the beginning looks like you're in uh, Nancy Pelosi's Wakanda. <laughs> it, it, it's wild, but it's like, it's, it, it just, it feels like unlike anything else is the only way I can put you know, it. The closest thing I, that I can recall that sounds, which is sounds similar to what you're describing is actually good thing you hear, Brandon is, is a, a universal, universal soldier, uh, you know, uh, they've yeah. Yeah, like, like you no, know, I, I I have to wonder what the Himes has to say about Pew himself because you can again this is yeah so now, you know this is like the part of our bread and butter here in the show like we, we we're here looking for and exalting the current masters of the DTV of the underground of of the of the bare bones action and he's one of them he's one of the kings and, I, yeah. and like even now as we're talking about this and as I'm seeing this footage and as we're speaking like I see Pew's like soul in high and stuff too, you know, like this kind of raw, like simple, simplistic or doing the most of what you have, but still just going all in on the action. And, you know, like he did like this influence. You see it so much, in so much stuff now, right? everything from like Michael Jawad stuff to, you know, Atkins, of course, like, like th this was, yeah, like that we're, we're talking, well, I've mentioned before, but you know, he has this, well, well, like Justin said, like, you know, he was five years too early all the time, but also like he's also like kind of this godfather in a way of this DTV stuff that we have now. Like, 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 so he has, he's, he's touched these two realms of cinema. Like, in, I'm, in I'm, I'm, things, you know? I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's not, I, I don't think John Hines is going to have anywhere as similar as a career as uh, Albert Pune, uh, just, in but, but just in terms of like, a filmmaker who's made such extraordinary work that, and this is my thing, all this shit is to me as dreamlike, as surreal, as artful as anything in the Criterion collection or what David Lynch is doing. But because it's in the action genre, it doesn't get the respect that it deserves. And I feel like John John Himes, like his, his Universal Soldier films, uh, he's working in a similar space where, you know, I just feel like one of these days, John, though, is going to make the knockout film that we all know he, he can make that will transcend everything. Um, and Albert never got that chance, sadly. But I, I will put my foot down and just say that what Brandon was talking about, this dreamlike vibe of the movies, like the way he uses like opening text crawls, like yeah. so. <laughs> oh, he loves it. <laughs> He's so good at it. But it just, it puts you into this like cool state where you just feel like you, yeah, you're, you're, you're dissociating and, and dissolving into something really dreamy. And that's one of the best things that movies can do. And that's why pound for pound, inch for inch, this stuff, like, you know, like there's so many films in the criteria collection I would toss out and, and yeah. put cyborg <laughs> in instead. You know? I'm kind of kicking myself now because, you know, just for a spoiler for something I have coming up, I talked to John Hyams the other day and now I wish I had asked him about Pune <laughs> because I oh, I asked him about his influences and he 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 went off on stuff that I wasn't I, I didn't see, you know, just as a spoiler for this interview. He cites uh, 
Jim Jarmusch is one of his biggest influences. So like you can see like there's oh, yeah. there is like this artier side to these people working in these DTV zones that I don't think gets the credit it deserves because they're coming from a place of like real you know pardon the term but like cinephilia like they and and I don't think that they get that credit and and I think that speaking of like you know him being the godfather of like DTV masters you watch something like he uh one of Isaac Florentine's earliest movies Cold Harvest feels so much like an Albert Pune movie in aesthetic and in tone and it's just it's wild that I don't other than that and Bridge of Dragons Florentine never really did anything like that again but there's such a pune vibe to his early work that it's like I feel like everyone has their pune phase almost <laughs> well uh Isaac did direct the climax of a pune film yeah, oh, Max yeah. Adam, Curse of the yeah. Dragon yep yeah I, I never knew that so there you go <laughs> <laughs> yep, I own Max. I own both Max Havoc movies. Uh, I actually, and that was kind of his last uh, feature film. Yeah, that Pune made like with the crew was Max and, Havoc. And Max Havoc's not bad. Oh. It's not bad at all. It, it's 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 the, the second Max Havoc is actually terrible, but uh, the the first one has Pune and Florentine, and so there's at least decent fighting in it. Well, the one thing I do want to say about Nemesis for me, really quick, is. Um, I did grow up reading cyberpunk. I was a big William Gibson fan and there is no doubt in my mind that the best William Gibson movie that is not a William Gibson movie is nemesis. And thank you. Actually, yesterday, William Gibson uh, actually shouted out Albert. Uh, really? Oh, that's amazing. Albert that's awesome. As a couple of startlingly great for uh, Barbarian termite moments. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I mean and there's, and there's look, <laughs> underhand no but I, 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 I know william he likes to be called bill so um, i'll refer to him as bill uh, you know, <laughs> our I'm, good I'm, friend I'm bill gibson <laughs> well, but I've, I've known him for years i swear to god like uh 20 years ago you know i interviewed him for my college radio show uh but 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 there's bill has been very open about how some people misconstrued about his literature that he was very influenced by b-movie cinema you know and and some of the action in the books like is not meant to be super highbrow like the attitude of that literature was so anti how staid and conservative science fiction had become and how it wasn't dealing with the fact that we were going to merge with machines on some level and it's the way we're all living invisibly now just on twitter it's just we didn't actually implant like you know cyborg arms but we're all living in this weird subconscious where we're connected by machines and, and and that those decades where we were going through that transition that's very much what that stuff is about um but bill will say like he really loves like b-movies and there's a lot of active like great you know movies like strange days bill's never seen and refuses to you know <laughs> and, and, and and he'll admit He'll admit that he knows that the Matrix stole from him, but but you know he thinks they're great works, and he even wrote the foreword to one of the early like making of Matrix books. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm with Mike. Like Nemesis is one of the pure pure like yeah. distillations of. It. I love Johnny Mnemonic. Look, don't get me wrong. Keanu being like, I want room service is as good as cinema gets. <laughs> but there's no question to me that the themes. If you've read Gibson's books nemesis captures the themes like the the line right. when yeah. when grenier gets shot because he's like 89 percent, and he's like shit now i'm 90 or whatever you know because he knows he's got to get he's going to be more augmented after this that is absolutely like spot on like pune understood and i don't i don't even know justin you maybe can give some insight into this i don't know if pune was a gibson fan or not but somehow 
whether it's preternatural or whatever, he understood Gibson's themes on a molecular level when he was making the Nemesis movies. Uh, I'm sure that he said it in an interview somewhere because he was such a massive consumer of like genre pop culture. There's no way he didn't uh, read any Gibson when he was making these movies, especially the idea of like sense of self. And that's also related to, I'm sure he was a massive anime fan as well. And that's all in there around that time. Like just, do you know anything specifically about that? Because, you know, it's so hard to find interviews with them in that period. And it's like, you know, it's probably in print magazines that haven't been digitized, but it's like, I, I wonder yeah, how much anime was he watching? And also when I talk about him being ahead of the curve, the wuxia stuff, like in nights, it's like, he, he, I, like I said, I've been able to find quotes where he talks about, he grew up watching Japanese cinema in, in a Toho theater, but I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, what else he was watching. We do know for a fact, he was obsessed with the movie Streets of Fire. Yeah. So much so that it took him 25 years to make a pseudo sequel to it, which is such an act of cinematic love. But this is the movie Road to Hell that we've been talking about with Michael mm-hmm. Paré. It is a unofficial sequel to a movie from the 80s that he loved so much. He spent 30 years of his own life and, and, and his time and money making a sequel to, which I think is so oddly beautiful. Like, you know, that, that's how much he loved the movie. I, I do think it is a bummer that we didn't get like any of those big in-depth interviews in his prime because by the time I was writing the book, like I didn't interview him for the book because I knew he was already very sick. And if you read a lot of interviews around that time, he's kind of hit that point where he's like, all right, these are my answers because I've answered these questions so many times. So it's kind of like the same every time. But I would love to talk to him in 1992 and be like, like what what are you watching? Like what is exciting yeah, for yeah. you? And unfortunately, like I talked to some of his cast members and director, uh, like a cinematographer, and I was like, Did he show you any of these movies? Did he and the guy was like, Nah, not really. Like maybe he did. I don't really remember. So I'm like, ah. but, but maybe he was singular enough, he was working and you know, just yeah, out maybe. Of his imagination. I mean, like, you know, it, it's like he's is pulling together all these disparate cultural things. I think radioactive dreams, one of the reasons it's so amazing, is uh it, it's such a you know, it, it's such a gest of everything about the 80s in one movie. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that, like, he's clearly watching, like, martial arts, wuxia, even King Who films when he made Knights because yeah, they're, like, fighting yeah. with swords in ways that, like, no one was fighting with swords at, the, at that time. And there's even shots of, like, someone flipping in the air and then it cuts to, like, uh, a hill and, like, pans over to see that they've landed 20 feet away. And that's like a <laughs> Ching Su Tung King Who move. That's, that's right. how I feel about Heat Seeker because he's very clearly, when he makes Heat Seeker, he's very clearly make, playing fucking Mortal Kombat. Yeah, oh, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. I love Paul W.S. Anderson's Mortal Kombat. Heat Seeker is a better Mortal Kombat movie than Mortal Kombat. Like the, wow. Like the entire concept of... Isn't the premise too? I I don't remember it that well, but it's like the the main fighter doesn't have heat seeker powers, and he has to take on all these cyborgs. So, so Keith Cook uh, Hirabashi, one of the greatest kickers who's ever lived in the world, like dude should have been one of the biggest martial arts stars of all time. The whole point is he's the last truly human fighter. And and he's retired, but they kidnap his girlfriend to force him to fight in this tournament so that he can fight Gary Daniels, who's like the top of the line model. Uh, and, and so he has to work his way through. And it's this tournament. It's it's again, it's 8711. Chad Stahelski's in it. It's it's all this stuff. TJ Storm's in it. Like all these. 
and 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 he fights his way through and then he and Gary Daniels have this fight where he uh basically just kicks the ever-living shit out of Gary Daniels and it's one of Gary Daniels first movies it's a, it's a star-making performance for Gary Daniels um it, it i if there is a a pune movie that i think people need to track down it's absolutely Heat Seeker. Heat Seeker is so fucking good. It's in my top five of Pune movies. I fucking love it. It's one of the best tournament fight movies of all time. Um, and in it's pure, but it's also it's the same Pune thing. It's weird. It's got Tim Thomerson with like really long fingernails and wearing like eyeliner because he's like some like Elon Musk like business leader because that's the whole. Thing. <laughs> the world is run by corporations and the corporations are the ones that are, you know, so again, years ahead of his time, that whole cyberpunk thing that he's focusing on. And it's, to me, it's a, it's a brilliant action movie that, that nobody has fucking seen. <laughs> and, and I need people to fucking see. <laughs> uh, I I've mean, never seen it. I'm going to track it down. That plot of a uh, regular guy boxer who has to take on a bunch of people that are cybernetically enhanced is the plot of the uh, anime series Megalobox that came out like five years ago, which was a remake of the Tomorrow Joe manga and anime. So like, again, Albert was already, you know, 10 years ahead. <laughs> no, and and I'll, I'll say this too. Amazon are about to launch a $150 million TV show of Fallout, the video game series, which is about, uh, eight, you know, uh, 80s post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland, except uh, all the technology is frozen in a pseudo 40s, 50s milieu. And that's fucking radioactive dreams. I was just thinking so, that, yeah. It, it's... We're, so we're about, and it's also, the show's going to have a comedic tone, you know, it's from like Jonathan Nolan, uh, the writer of Interstellar and, you know, uh, uh, Westworld. Uh, it's going to be a comedy, apparently. And I'm like, so Pune again was he fucking made like Fallout before the video game even. Right, I just Brandy? like I just like imagine like trying to explain to somebody radioactive dreams and it's you sound like you're making it up because you're like yeah well these two <laughs> uh, these two dancing private eye private eyes <laughs> who are inspired by like Marlowe dance their way across the wasteland saving the world it's like it doesn't make any sense but it's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen and they're played <laughs> by fucking Cougar from Top Gun and the fucking American Ninja Joe. Yeah, Mike, Michael Dudikoff yeah. Michael Dudikoff. Doing a performance he never did anywhere else no he's like, oh, boy, oh, what's going on yeah. <laughs> he's totally zany and hysterical and then you've got John Stockwell the director of Blue Crush with like one of the most wildly crazy action movies ever made yeah uh, as a super sincere, almost like tragic comic figure in a Pune movie, like yeah, it's so they it's just so they keep running into like Mad Max mutants, and they're just so like, oh geez, oh gosh, like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just adorable. <laughs> and that's so, a couple like, of dicks. <laughs> you know the, the way George Miller used the, the 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 apocalyptic wasteland is so allegorical. It's so grounded in like you know uh, archetypes. And, and like what we know of human history and what's in our subconscious. But that's like, I think the thing that's so different in, the, in Pune stuff, the number of times you use the post-apocalyptic wasteland, they said there's a weird optimism about it. It's like characters end up in it and actually bring something good to it and try to like persevere. Even, even he, he wanted to make, you know, Cyborg a dark nihilistic movie. It's still about saving somebody at its core, you know, like and, and sacrificing. Like there's 
there's a weird like optimism through his his, his nuclear holocausts. I think, and I think he brought of... brought some of the best out of Jean Claude Van Damme because he, I don't know how to f- frame this in a way that sounds nice, but he's not great in that movie. But at the same, like like his Eng- he's still struggling a bit with English in that movie. But at the same time, he. he he's always had some like a sense of like earnestness to him that just like feels so goofy and heartwarming. And, and I think that working with Pune brought that out the best because again, it's all by accident because like, he's not, he wasn't the greatest actor at the time. And I love Jean-Claude Van Damme and I think he's evolved into a really great actor. Um, but he, in that movie, he's just so silly and earnest and goofy, but it, it just fits Pune so perfectly. And I don't, I don't think many filmmakers, as much as I love like Bloodsport and Kickboxer, I I don't think many filmmakers were able to pull that out of Jean Claude Van Damme or just like meld with him so perfectly. Well, and here's the other thing: is uh, at that point, especially uh, Van Damme was um, stunningly beautiful. I mean, oh, yeah, he's, yeah, oh yeah, he's so Albert hot. Tells in that stories movie. of Van Damme calling him into his trailer, and he's like, "Look at me, Albert," and he was like flexing, <laughs> and he's like, "Look." I, look. I, I don't think Van Damme has ever been more pretty. And I don't mean this as a criticism. I don't think Van Damme has ever been more pretty than he is in Cyborg. He is absolutely he's not gorgeous in that movie. Even his hair is red. But the, but the sequence where he's up on a cross, he's actually crucified and suffering. Uh, uh, I mean, look, it's weird. Like the whole movie's ADR. Vincent, uh, the, the actor who plays uh, Vincent the, the, the gang. Yeah, Vincent Clinton. His whole voice is ADR through the whole movie. ADR gives things a kind of dreamlike effect I like, and you know Van Damme's still struggling with the accent. But just like Mike said, Van Damme is so fucking hot in that movie. I mean, just every time he's on screen, uh, you just are drawn into watching him. And there's a weird vulnerability. I mean, he's supposed to be playing like a a slinger, a badass who will kill anybody <laughs> to survive, and he's super traumatized. But there's a weird vulnerability that, that you know he's carrying that, that seems to be the essence of Van Damme underneath. That's what I was trying to get at is vulnerability, and I couldn't find the word for whatever reason. But that's more so than the earnestness and goofiness that he has just by being himself. He there's it's that vulnerability, and and I and and also you know just as an <laughs> Pune recognized him as like a Christ-like figure, which is right because he does share initials <laughs> with Jesus Christ. I mean, JC. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one yeah, of the but, most one of the most beautiful things about making Mandy in Belgium is that there is a statue of Jean Claude Van Damme in Brussels oh outside, my God. outside I, of outside of a mall, and so I went on a little pilgrimage there on my bicycle. <laughs> like, I, I have to do that. That's amazing. <laughs> Look up pictures just, of it. This makes me sad, unless I'm missing something because he had so many movies. Uh, my favorite ever uh, is Dolph, and I just always wish that Pune had been able to work with him just once, because I think they could have done something pretty cool together. He-Man would have been it, but uh, it just never happened. Yeah. Um, Justin, I gotta ask you one thing I gotta ask you about, because you have the insight on this. Brick Bart. Where does Brick Bardo? <laughs> for those who don't know, Brick Bardo is a character in so many Albert Pune movies. Obviously, the most famous one is that's Tim Thomerson's character in uh, in Dollman, but it's Ralph Muller's character in Cyborg. There's a character in 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 Radioactive Dreams. Tom Matthews' character in Blood Batch is uh, mm-hmm. is Brick Bardo. What, what what was Albert's obsession with the name Brick Bardo? I mean, I think he just liked the name, but he first used it 
because it was a homage to a kind of mentor figure for Albert, a guy named Joseph Bardo, who, so I don't have any of this information confirmed. This is just me looking at dates and IMDb and stuff like that. But I get the feeling Albert worked with him when he first arrived in LA and Joseph Bardo at that time was working in pornography. So perhaps that's how he paid the bills a little bit before he got Sword and the Sorcerer. And after Radioactive Dreams fell apart, uh, Joseph Bardo and his wife helped Albert get vicious lips off the ground. And Joseph Bardo is kind of like, he's not super prolific, but he's most famous for uh, working a lot with Ray Dennis Steckler. He's one of the guys in the thrill killers. He's one of the murderers in that movie. So I think it probably came from there. He's like, oh, I just want to, you know, homage my good friend, uh, Joseph Bardo, Brick Bardo, sounds cool, alliteration. And he just ran with it. Like, I need to name a character. Let's just name him Brick Bardo again. No actual <laughs> like link to or c- continuity. Like it's not Michael Moorcox, the eternal champion or anything like that. He just like, I like this name. Kind of like, what is the name that, like Jess Franco has a name too that he ut- utilizes over and over and over again in all of his movies. And that's really the only reason uh, most famously portrayed uh, by Tim Thomerson in Dollman because he's the protagonist was the name Brick Bardo. But I also love like didn't uh, didn't uh, um, Pune used aliases for his own work? Yep, like, like a deceit oh, like... was written by Kitty Chalmers. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And 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 I remember something where it was like he felt it was cheap if a movie uh, had too many of the same name credited, which is so funny because so many egotistical A list filmmakers will fight. To have their name 18 times in the credits. That is absolutely <laughs> what someone said like during a test screening somewhere. They were like, why is your name so many times in this movie? And they're like, all right, uh, I need to change it. I mean, a lot of the guys like Jim Wynorski would take a lot of pseudonyms too because yeah. he didn't want people to think that you know, he directed too many movies or maybe he directed a movie that he would look down upon a little bit. And Jim Wynorski took over an Albert Poon uh, production, Bad Business. So there's all these like weird links. Like he worked basically with everybody. Well, I say who's, worked. They took over productions after they came to the curb. Who's the actress in uh, Brain Smasher, A Love Story? What's her name again? Dor- Harry Hatcher. Harry yeah. Uh, the other one uh, who was in like four Poon movies. Oh, well, oh. I was, I was just going to say, I, I just saw a beautiful thing from her where she was talking about working with him. Oh, Deborah Van Valkenburg? Yeah, De- yeah, Deborah Van Valkenburg, where she was talking about how she felt that uh, if, uh, you know, she knew she was making Albert happy if he was chuckling. And mm. and I, I like, when I think about like these goofy names that Roger Ebert made fun of, like the fact that he even had fun with the names of the characters that, you know, you'd only see in the end credits. Like mm-hmm. I feel there was a, a great sense of humor in his work too. Like that you can't be understood. And if we're going to celebrate him, I just like, I really love that idea that like, you know, no matter how hard the, the filmmaking was and all the nightmares he went through. I mean, he openly talked in interviews, like, making that was hell it was a nightmare but that he still seemed to have this thing where you know if he if, if somebody if an actor could make him laugh he was happy and she, and she she knew that was like one of the best things you could bring to Albert. so he was still finding joy in the process always and i think that's why he kept making films till you know at the very end i've read some interviews with some of the actors on some of his films some of the crew members and there is like you know almost an uneasiness of like yeah you know i worked with albert like i asked uh, Tom Matthews about it uh, a couple weeks ago. He was at a festival and I had some Albert questions and he kind of like, yeah, I guess Albert just kept asking me to be in his movies. It's like, no, no, I want you to like talk about your relationship with him. And I think there's almost like 
there's like an embarrassment. It's like, oh yeah, I made that movie. Like, uh, don't ask me about it. And I hope that, you know, they start talking about it more now. Like I posted a Christopher Lambert interview that was on a Blu-ray in France. And Christopher Lambert yeah. loves Albert Pune. And he says all the stuff that I've always, you know, wanted to hear an actor say, which is like, he's super passionate. He was always in control. He was always coming up with stuff. And he was also talking to everybody on set, like making sure everybody was okay. And it's like, yeah, that, those are the stories I want to hear when a lot of the times you find actors are probably like, I have a DTV thing. Like, I don't really want to talk about it too much. I paid the bills with my stuff. And my, you want to take them aside and be like, no, but it's good. It's good. People genuinely like this. My yeah, favorite yeah. thing about that. Oh, sorry, Mike. No, I was just gonna say, I'm sorry, but nobody hooked Tom Matthews, except I guess the director of uh, Friday Six. Nobody hooked Tom Matthews <laughs> fucking albert pune like tom should be like getting down and like worship <laughs> albert pune walked on tom matthews uh, agreed to do an interview with me for the book and then i was like all right sweet uh can you do it on this date just no response and i'm oh, like don't man. tease me like oh this. wow well my favorite thing about that clip you posted justin is how uh christopher lambert says multiple times he's like it, it, and and almost like in awe of Albert Pune's ability to to make a ninety minute movie in like four days, and he's like he he he's like I would always be like Albert, slow down. You can make this in ten days, but he, he's like no, I'm, I'm making it in four. And, like, and it's just like, I, I, I wanted love- to be to like Christopher if I was in the room. I was like, if you give him an extra three days, he'll he'll take longer. Yeah, like yeah. he's paying you like three million dollars for four days. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and Lam- it- that makes no surprise. That's no surprise to me that Lambert loves him just because you know Lambert's worked with a lot of really shitty directors he's also worked with some of the best directors in the business um but if you watch Lambert in Mean Guns um, yeah let's give Mean Guns a shout out Adrenaline you know that got taken away that's a, a bit of a mess but if you watch Lambert in Mean Guns he is having so much fucking fun in that movie he is just everybody in that movie is having like we're in this prison and we're just going to do some John Woo shit backed by salsa music and everybody is having so much fucking fun in that movie uh, like uh, Mean Guns is yeah definitely one also you know I shouted out Heat Seeker but Mean Guns is another one I got to shout out like if you haven't seen it folks listening you got to fucking check out Mean Guns Find the widescreen version though. It's out there. Because uh, it's out there. Yeah, it's out there. It was released in France and Germany. So you can pick it up. It looks amazing because he shot with his cinematographer all of these films in Cinemascope. And like he uses the whole frame under the like deluded belief they would screen theatrically. Like he didn't know DVD would exist or Blu-ray, but he still shot them all in scope and framed them for scope. Like that is commitment to making movies. Probably like the thing that you had to hang on to to be able to keep going. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm coming back to again this whole like the breadth of his genre acumen. Like Mean Guns is a gangster ass movie, a certified gangster ass movie. Like, and like, this is the same guy that did this crazy ass Nemesis, the same guy that did the sword, the sword movie, the guy who shoots a sword over the sword. This is the same fucking guy. Like, he could do it all. You know, like, this, we're not going to get anybody like this ever again. You know, but it, it, but like, it's, I'm again, like you know, uh, should we, I'm really happy that you know we we have all this to get to, to see, to, to this legacy that's behind to check out, and it's still influencing stuff today. You know, it's so mm-hmm. cool. 
And he was doing superhero movies before it was cool. And everyone makes fun of that Captain America movie, but I still <laughs> think that's the best looking Captain America suit we've ever had on screen. <laughs> I, I think that Captain America, I have tons of fun with it. But as I say in the book, it's like Albert can ask the question, what if Captain America was a huge loser? <laughs> I love that. I'm sorry. But just that's... I love it too. It's like <laughs> I literally on his first mission, he's like, whoops, I got frozen. He steals I, a I, couple I, cars I... in that movie. Yeah. Oh, I feel sick. Stop the car. <laughs> and the it keeps seat. happening. Yeah. And then it's JD Salinger's son, the yeah, other Matt Salinger. The best so, part of Captain America is is actually in one of Albert's regular go-tos. Oh, yeah. Scott Pollen is doing such a tremendous fucking thing as the Red Skull in that movie. And the I've Italian told, Red Skull, which I love. I have told this story before on this show, but I will tell it again that the worst celebrity interaction I have ever had was with Scott Pollen. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because so I used to work at a luggage store here in Utah and he lived in Utah. Um, and so he came in and he was buying luggage and uh I wanted to I, I wanted to have a whole conversation with him talking about Albert and stuff like this. And I'm probably 17 at the time. Mm -hmm. But I started with saying, you know, he hand, I recognize him, but then he hands me his credit card to buy the luggage. And I it's Scott Paul. And so I'm like, dude, you were in pump up the volume. And he's like, yeah, that was a good movie, wasn't it? But at that time, he was also in 90210 uh, playing a really like the the dis. The like uninterested husband of Dina Meyer, who Brandon's having an affair with. So I said, Oh, and you're in 90210. And he's like, You know what? You do six fucking shows of some TV show, and that's all that anybody ever remembers you for. And he like then like took his luggage and left. And I'm like, No, but nice. And Captain America, no, don't go away yet. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I really missed this opportunity to have this conversation with Scott Pollan. Should have been like, About all his other work. <laughs> <laughs> but he is so good in Albert's movies. Uh, it, like he's just such a tremendous actor. And and again, anybody if you've seen him in Pump Up the Volume, you know he's a tremendous actor. So now you're getting that level in these like quote unquote bullshit low budget DTV movies. Uh, yeah, he's doing a thing in Captain America. I mean, he's he's really and Albert's smart enough to know. Like I'm gonna let him do it. Maybe it's a bad yeah. decision. Maybe it's not. I don't know, but it's a decision, and I appreciate a decision in a movie. Was mm. there ever any clarity on why Red Skull is Italian in that movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest Nazi villain in fiction, probably. What if it was a Marvel rights thing where it's like, okay, you can do the Red Skull, but he has to be Italian. That's so so. Funny. I mean, decisions were made. Why does the Red Skull look so awesome in that first scene? And then he just looks like a Dick Tracy villain for the rest of the movie. I do love that movie, though. It's it's it has that pune charm. And I saw that you put that uh, you you put up a list last night, which uh, I shared um, and I'm going to share again, too. So I hope hopefully people can see it uh, of like the essentials that people should watch, like a like a starting guide if you've never mm. seen Pune. And you had Captain America listed as like something that should be given a second chance, which I thought was a was a really appreciated. Because this, uh, this something kind of hate with the current internet discourse is um there's like reevaluations and there's like backlash to reevaluation, like because people are like no, you were just a kid. That shit sucked back then. You were just like too stupid to know it because you were a kid. And it's like, well, I don't know, maybe. Sure, but like, and then again, I don't want to. I don't want to keep on knowing how stuff is bad now, 
but like you know because you know the first the Captain America that you know Chris is great, but it's like we we or well, at least right now like Phase Four and shit or the new this new current DCEU like we were kind of floundering, and it's like no that Captain America was a distinct vision, like I put it up there with like Tim Burton's Batman as far as like this is a distinct thing about this distinct hero that nobody else can really can really emulate. And it's like this is this, this is what people people cry about. They want from superhero movies. They want distinct visions. And they want you know this clear you know this clear sense of emotion and storytelling. That's the fucking movie. This is this is Pune's Captain America. And it's like so it's like no. If we, if we're gonna when we hopefully we start to watch it again, reevaluate it, or, or see it for the first time, it's like no. Is that a joke? It's like this is what you know. This is what true to the comic book character is this this ideal. You know, like that, that's that's real. Is that's that, such, that's not a fucking joke. That's such a good point because we have like so many, and not to slight the people who actually made them, but we have like so many Marvel movies that are so clearly the vision of Kevin Feige, but we only have one Marvel movie that's so clearly the vision of Albert Pugh. And I honestly, as silly as it is, I would probably take that every day. That's so rad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that Captain America can also be more appreciated now albert pune's vision because it is not the defining one it's like this is all you get and people are like this is it (laughs) like (laughs) this is the captain america that we're gonna get for the rest of time (laughs) now there's tons of captain americas so it's like oh yeah you want to go watch like the real ones go watch chris evans do his thing but like this one it is individualistic it is uh its own thing you will see nothing like it and it's also a film talking about compromise like uh yeah, the boys yeah. went oh yeah the movie's done and albert was like well, there's no action in this movie and, they're like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and albert had to go shoot inserts and you can see them in the movie like in like a black void to get like any action <laughs> into the picture well the other thing I all like, the movie had been blown on superman 4 mm-hmm. and, and he was left holding the bag <laughs> the other, other thing I like about Pune's Captain America is it does feel like kind of the, the start of because it came out in, uh, I want to say, 90. Yeah. So it it feels of a piece with the Rocketeer and the Shadow and the Phantom and Dick Tracy, those those kind of weird 90s comic book movies where like studios decided that what people really wanted wasn't Spider-Man, but fucking 1930s heroes for whatever reason, you know, and so it, it, it feels like a piece with those movies that, again, at the time when they came out, nobody really liked them. But now, 25 years later or 30 years later, they feel so unique. They feel like I I remember seeing the Phantom opening weekend and just being like, what the fuck is this? And now I love like that I mean, awesome. I love the Phantom, the most low energy superhero performance you've ever seen. I Billy Zane being like, hey everybody, I'm the Phantom. How, how's it going? <laughs> Billy Zane. We love Billy Zane. Like yeah. I mean, we all love Tree Williams too, yeah, who is yeah, exactly. making up ten times for Billy Zane's low energy performance. Yep, and <laughs> you know, in 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 the shadow, I still i I don't love Dick Tracy. That's the one that I haven't still gotten on. Oh, I they, love that movie. I know a lot of people do. I have not. You gotta love those montages. So many montages. <laughs> but it feels like a piece with those movies. And that's, what's interesting about it is, you know, Albert was both so ahead of his time and of his time. And I feel like that's what makes his movies so fun is, is you can watch them and be like, yeah, like Justin, you nailed it, right? We have Chris Evans as captain. And look, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Joe Johnston. 
I love Albert. Joe Johnston's a better director than Albert, at least, uh, at least based on what we know, based on the resources, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but Joe Johnston made a quote unquote better Captain America movie, but yeah, he didn't sure. make one that was as unique, uh, that was as, as of, a just that time and a place, um, and he certainly didn't cast fucking Matt Salinger as Captain America. <laughs> I don't know. Imagine, what was going through his mind when he ca- cast Matt Salinger? He wanted to cast like a skinny guy and then like a muscular actor. And he wanted Howie Long to play like the hero Captain America. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which that would have been may, great. Yeah. Maybe he loves the, the catcher in the rye. Maybe he's just a big catcher in the he rye. He wanted an end with his dad. He's like, finally, I'll be able to yeah. do what yeah, Jerry because Lewis couldn't. Uh-huh. JD was such a recluse and he wanted to like, you know, ask how he was doing or whatnot. I don't know. I, now, now, though, with Disney and the multiverse and all this, maybe they can Could they bring back on. Matt Salinger? That would be <laughs> as, amazing. As, because like Earth, Kevin Feige was like, six, we're bringing six, back six. everybody. Everyone who's yeah, ever played a superhero. Yeah. Albert Pion's Captain America, an Italian uh, Red Skull comeback. Oh, I would, that would be <laughs> and a Disney Plus show that costs $100 million and like with tons of but CG. Like, yeah, that's my thing. We have to appreciate that a Captain America movie starring Matt fucking Salinger exists. <laughs> like we have to love the fact that this movie fucking exists. And that's what Albert did. He made movies exist that had no business existing. No. It doesn't matter whether they worked or whether they didn't. They had no fucking business even existing in the world. <laughs> And he made those movies, a Streets of Fire, entirely CGI sequel <laughs> 30 years later, has no fucking business existing. <laughs> made movies exist that shouldn't exist. And that, I think, maybe more than anything else, is what I loved him for. Uh, that that mm-hmm. is that is the reason that we are now going on well over two hours. <laughs> man. Because he made shit exist that shouldn't exist, and like like I was saying about Road to Hell, it's it's an act of pure filmmaking love, and I just there's so much you know uh, sincerity, not the schmaltzy sentimental kind, but just in all his filmmaking, there's such an extraordinary sincerity of trying to make something unique that stands out, and I just I think the proof is there. What Justin was saying, like he knew that so many of these movies were going to be abandoned direct TV, and yet he still shot them anamorphic widescreen, which meant that because he said he wanted it. I remember reading a quote where he wanted it to look that good for him when he was shooting it. It's like he didn't give a fuck how they were going to like distribute it. Eventually, he still wanted to make like the best thing he could as he was making it, and so I just you know. When I when I when I think about just the the events of the past few weeks and months when we heard he was ill, um, it's really beautiful that his wife Cynthia was able to like you know uh, share with us that he'd like to hear from us. And I was just knowing that he loved dogs so much. If you go back and look at old interviews with him from ten years ago, he's always got a picture with like, like a a mood board with just nothing but pictures of all his dogs. And they raise a lot of dogs together. And then, like I said, Nemesis is one of the best dog moments in a cyberpunk movie ever. But it's like all the things he loved ended up in his films. And, and I saw that, you know, he got to go home from hospice care a few days ago 
reunite with the dogs that love him and they were in bed with him and he remembered where he was and he was at home and i'm just so glad that you know a guy who made films out of so much sincerity and love got to have that moment and and for me i just like i said i I, I, I know filmmakers talk about how they want to get out of the game because it's so excruciating, heartbreaking. Uh, it robs you of your health, <laughs> your years, your your endurance. And and Albert, I really cannot say enough about, you know, he made some movies that I love, but he also per perverse, persevered in a way that I respect so enormously and, and very few filmmakers that have achieved. I mean, even going beyond his illnesses to keep creating that that's incredible. And I gotta be honest. I, I, I mean, I know we could keep going for hours and hours, but I, I think that's such a nice summation, Aaron, that I, I think that's a good place to stop. The one last thing I do want to do. So I'm going to go to each of you. I want you to give everybody listening uh, an Albert Pune movie that uh, we're going to throw out cyborg. Um, but I want, I want, because, uh, that's obviously the, the obvious one. And we're going to throw out radioactive dreams because I think we have sung the praises of that one enough. I'm going to go to each of you and I want you to, to, to shout out an Albert Pune movie that you think people this week, uh, should check out to sort of celebrate, uh, him. So, uh, Brandon, I'm going to go to you first. I, I was, I think brain smasher is the one that I would go with. It's, it's gorgeous. It has Andrew Dice Clay's best performance, which I mean, isn't saying much, but he's great in it. Uh, Terry Hatcher looks amazing in it. And it's just, if you love uh, Big Trouble in Little China, I think Brain Smashers a, a great movie to pair, pair it with. Aaron. I'm going to, I mean, yeah, you, you, you uh, took off those other two, but I will say Nemesis. I just think like anybody can watch that and just be visually astounded by it. I mean, it has a scale of action and physical reality that just, so hard to accomplish these days but i swear like i've been trying to argue emotionally it is the uh best cyberpunk movie ever made like still to this day um it just has something so foregrounded in an existential crisis about what does it mean to be in a body in such a in, in such arresting incredible images um it's just so cool and beautiful too and and it's like you know for i, I just really want to fight back against these years of 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 even even some really cool people who I I do respect did a recent YouTube video where you know they were talking about Albert and they were still being ironic about him. But I, I think if you watch Nemesis, even for all the faults in, in its logic or whatever, it's such a distinct, beautiful, gorgeous, like haunting, dreamlike action movie. Justin. So I think people should watch Mean Guns. That's the one that I fell in love with, Albert, in a accidental buying of Mean Guns and U.S. Seals 2 for like 10 bucks, I think, at like a local video store. So that was like, ooh, that defined my path for a long time. But I want people to go out there and watch Deceit from 1990. This is the purest Albert film you will ever see. Shot on the sets, without permission, of Cyborg during reshoots, starring <laughs> two of his you know, most uh, reoccurring actors in his films, Norbert Weiser and Scott Paulin, and really starring the amazing Samantha Phillips. And it's like a one room chamber piece about two people who want to have sex and they may be aliens with one woman and her just turning the tables on them until you realize that actually the fate of the planet rests in the balance. And it's basically like David Mamet-ish, like Neil Laboot-esque, 
but with all the weirdness that Albert is known for and made in a situation that was impossible that he not only uh, made on the sets of Cyborg, but then turned around and sold back essentially to Canon to one of their companies and they released it on video. So just for the act and how pure of a movie it is, highly recommend checking it out. So, yeah, I, I, I just want to tag in on that for just a second uh, and then Vice, I'll get to you. But yeah, no. And, and also starring, like you said, the unbelievable Samantha Phillips, who, for those who don't know, is a big, uh, big um, shit. Why am I drawing a Andy Sedaris uh, star? And and Albert actually really gets some some a pretty terrific performance out of her. And it is such an interesting movie. And again, it's, you know. Everybody really likes um, Richard Linklater's tape, which is kind of deceit like 10 years earlier. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really worth checking out. Um, Vice. Yeah, just to mention that, that I'm going to go ahead and uh, once again say Mean Guns. Like, like again, that's, that is a certified gangsta-ass movie. And it's just like, again, to reiterate that, this guy, Albert Pune, known for doing this, such a wild, having a wild meditation in the wild, you know, scope and scale of genre stuff, he here is just a straight up, pot, you know, pot bullet action ass, you know, gangster movie. Like, and that's, that's kind of it's kind of uh inspiring to me in a way. It's like you know, you know, like because to be able to kind of do all this stuff, like that's again, it's realizing now in hindsight how much he influenced my taste, my sensibilities. Like, you don't have to limit yourself to what you like, what you make, whatever. Like, you can do. You can do anything. Like, there's no rule book really to this stuff. So, yeah, but yeah, as far as like that goes, that's just one aspect of, you know, like we said, update with John Woo and all these great Walter Hill, like I mentioned before. He's one, he's, he has his foot in that area as well. So, yeah, mean guns is tight. And for me, I've I've already sung the praises of Heat Seeker, and I've I've sung the praises of this one. But the yeah, yeah the uh, the big one I'm going to say is Kickboxer Two. Uh, yeah, Kickboxer Two. I really, really, if you're a martial arts movie fan, if you like tournament movies, if you like rehab movies, you know, if you like movies where your action star gets his ass kicked and then has to to fight back. I mean, Kickboxer Two does it about as well as any fucking movie that's ever been done. And uh, and again, the way Albert shoots it and the way he he handles it is it's also got if you're a nine oh speaking of Scott Paul and getting mad at me for nine oh two and oh it's got a very young Brian Austin Green showing up for a minute in it, uh, <laughs> but uh, Kickboxer two is one that I think and uh, most of Albert's movies, not all of them, but most of them are on Tubi for free. So, uh, you know, some of them you'll have to, to dig a little harder, like Radioactive Dreams and, and Brain Smasher. But but most of them, I mean, if you just go to Tubi and search Albert Pune, you'll have a great time just going through those movies. Um, Aaron, did you want to? I was, I was just going to say some of them are easier to find than you think on certain sites. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you dig yeah, around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, we're not, uh, we're not ever advocating piracy, but you know what, if you're not going to let me watch fucking radioactive dreams, if you're not going to put it out, then I'm going to, I, I'm going to do what I got to do to see the fucking movie. Um, yeah, but also to be exists for Apple movies. That's what it's for. That's yeah, why they made that fucking thing. Yeah, he might be the most ass <laughs> director that has ever lived. And I, they should uh, change it. They should change it to Pune app. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> and, and that is Puny. A Puny. Comic, right? <laughs> that is, yeah. Um, 
All right, uh, boys. I think we worked through some shit today. This was, uh, I'm going to give everybody a chance to plug some shit. So Aaron, where can people find you? Look, I'm part of a mass exodus away from Twitter. Unfortunately, I can't <laughs> take it anymore. Uh, I'm on Hive Social right now uh, and Instagram, but um, I just want to, uh, you know, I, I want to tell Justin's book is amazing. If you love Albert Pune or want to investigate the films more, uh, for me, I've got right now on Netflix uh, Guillermo del Toro's anthology Cabinet of Curiosities, episode seven, the viewing. That's Panos, director Mandy, and I reuniting uh, with this all new tale and, with um, Eric Andre. And I just tell you, amazing fucking episode. Like you guys just Thanks. fucking killed that. I I don't know what it is yet, but it's really awesome to hear that from you. And I just uh, I, I advise people to watch it. I've also got December twenty fifth, Witcher Blood Origin. I I wrote an episode, and that's got Michelle Yeoh with elf ears and a sword. So I can die happy now. Oh. I don't, you know, I haven't seen it. I don't know what it's going to be like, but. But I know that Michelle Yeoh has a fucking sword and health ears. Yeah. And that's it. Brandon, uh, talk about what you're doing with Secret Handshake and where people can find you. Uh, well, you can find me if you, you'll see my name linked. My last name's too annoying to uh, spell out. So you'll see it in the description if you just search that out on Instagram, Twitter, Hive. I'm on there. Uh, even uh, I think that's worth worth signing up for Hive just in case, even though the app takes 10 minutes to load. But anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, w- Secret Handshake. Uh, it right now. Uh, I've been working on kind of. It's it's going to be late now because the anniversary already passed. But um, a Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning it was originally supposed to be an or- a mini oral history with some of the people involved. But then the interviews went longer than I expected, and especially John Hyams, and the answers were so long and just pretty amazing that they're going to be released as a two parter. Uh, my first ever hosting a, a podcast episode i worded that horribly but hopefully i sound better in the podcast but yeah there's going to be a uh, part one and part two part one with scott adkins part two with john himes both interviews talking about day of reckoning and celebrating that a little bit so be on the lookout for that if you follow me i'll post all about it but i don't want to promote myself even though i just did don't want to promote myself too much on this episode just because i think that it should be all about albert so i'll just say yeah seek out those movies and uh and I, I posted this on my page. Um, I wrote a tribute to him a while back, and I would love for you guys to read that because I go to Bad Hard for Alien from L.A., and I, I really do love that movie and love his work. So just really appreciate you having me here, Mike. No, uh, it was you were a no brainer. Actually, Aaron was immediately like, we got to get Brandon on. So, um, oh, well, thank you. Aaron. <laughs> but I'll, I'll play. I mean, it's an article. Is it called like my my best worst nemesis? Or, uh, so I, I, see, I don't write the I don't I hope uh, my editor's not listening to this. I don't write the headlines for my own articles. And it's called his own worst nemesis, which I don't love because it right. sounds almost like a dig at Albert. But uh, but yeah, uh, that's the title. His own worst nemesis. The films of Albert Pune. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed writing that, even though, again, I, I don't think the headline's very reflective of what I wrote, but that's okay. <laughs> but it's a great article. Yeah, read it. And also, I just, I'm so stoked for your Universal Soldier podcast. I'm so oh, very excited. I thank love you. that movie thank so much. Thanks so much. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I've already done it in DMs, but I'm going to do it here. Fuck you, Brandon. I'm the Scott Adkins guy. What the fuck? <laughs> I, 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 I am so unbelievably happy that that all came together for you. I don't want anybody listening to think that I'm being <laughs> so unbelievably happy that that came Oh, my together. God. He looks so angry on, on the video. <laughs> <laughs> He's smiling. Uh, 
Justin, uh, yeah, <laughs> talk about the book. Talk about uh, talk about your video label. Talk about where people can find you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter still at Decluje, D-E-C-L-O-U-X and the letter J. Uh, go on there and post a lot of Albert clips, like that interview with Christopher Lambert. I did a quick English translation and it's up there. You can also uh, catch me every week on the Important Cinema Club, which is a podcast I do. We have an episode on Albert Pyun. So if you want kind of like a rundown of his career, uh, check that out. I also do another podcast called No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. And we did a long one on Captain America a couple of years ago. So if you want like a full breakdown of that film and hear me uh, defend it as we go along, uh, check that out. And the book Radioactive Dreams, The Cinema of Albert Pyun was a book that I wrote basically because we were going to play Radioactive Dreams on 35 millimeter. And I was like, I want to be able to sell something. So I wrote the book just for that event. <laughs> and it is available at Amazon, just wherever it's print on demand. Uh, I know it's evil, but this is the only basically where I could get a book out there, especially a book about Albert Pyun that when I put it out, people were like, why would you write a book about him? And I'm like, read it, read it. And also, you got to read it from cover to cover. It was written to be read that way because it's like the arc of his career. Don't just skip to like, oh, I want to read about Cyborg. It's like start at the beginning and go all the way to the end. I interviewed like Norbert Weisner and uh, Tony Ripperetti and George Muradian. And they just go into the career in ways that like I, they've never talked about. Like George worked with Vittorio Storaro on Dick Tracy. And then went and worked for Albert Pune for like decades. So I, I actually have to give you some credit. I'm so happy you're on this show because um, so I am one of the projects that I have currently juggling is I am hopefully theoretically uh, at some point writing the definitive Scott Adkins book. And I am absolutely going to steal your format because I think oh, do it brilliant format for how to go through somebody's career. Uh, you know, the way, you did where it's like, yeah, you're pulling all these threads together and like, it's important to do it in phases like that because mm -hmm. things matter. So I just <laughs> I wanted to tell you that you are a huge influence on me and a huge influence on what I've done. I basically ripped off the idea from uh, the Claude Chabrol, Eric Romer, the first Hitchcock book that they wrote. <laughs> and not only like, I mean, that sounds very kind of like, oh, I put myself on the level of these French new wave masters. <laughs> no, my idea was people don't really talk about that book anymore, but they were the first ones to do it. And that was my original idea was like, I can't like, I want to do the like best Albert Pin book there is, but I don't have the resources for it. So like, if there's a jumping off point for people, that would be good. So, you know, the tradition continues, but I'm sure <laughs> yours will be yeah. much more complicated. That's what I've been arguing is that Pew should be in the highest regard as Eric Romero. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people messaged me when I put the book out and they were like, I was working on an Albert Pugh book. I'm like, you can still do it. Like <laughs> there's still tons yeah, of there's, there's no, there's no, yeah, more Albert Pugh books better. Um I want a big hardcover color Albert Pugh book that interviews attachment. everyone in vivid detail. It's $150 <laughs> for some reason. Vice, where can people find you? Oh, yeah. Well, as always, uh, I'm on Twitter talking shit at my fitness. I'm going down with the ship. No, uh, fuck everybody. Fuck, <laughs> fuck Elon. Fuck everybody else is making this shit worse. I'm trying to make this shit like 4chan on Twitter, but fuck it. I'm going to be here to the end. But I'm also on Instagram at my fitness. Looking hot. Uh, being showing food. Thanksgiving was good. So I have pictures of that. Uh, I'm also on my letterbox. I'm on letterbox being smart. So I, I, I have some good words sometimes. Even though I didn't say much here today. Just check me out there. I reviewed some stuff this weekend for y'all. Um, 
Yeah, that's uh, yeah. You can find me uh, here on the streets, out here in the streets of cinema, doing things. I'm 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 where the spirit is, man. That's where, that's where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, hopefully, running into Matt Ramos so we can throw hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a shout please, out to Tobias. Everything. Be nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> I want I, I want to give a shout out to Vice's uh, Thanksgiving pork shoulder. Damn, oh, dude. bro. Yo, man, yeah. <laughs> see, see, that's what you got to follow. It's like family tradition. Like my brother has like a really good one. He used to be a cook back in the back in his days. Yeah. My sister has a jerk, jerk pork shoulder. So I have to like figure out myself. Yeah, it's a whole science and process and magic. You know, it's all good. It's not. It's too, it's I'm not that good. Just, hey, thanks for putting this together so much, Vice and like everybody who came on. And I just uh, for anyone just listening to this, I mean, look, it, it was sad, but we were smiling through a lot of this. And and that's what I love. like. You filmmakers, you get to remember them by their films. You always get to just keep watching them. So we well, were, we were actually, laughing at smile. That's actually something. Before I get into to my plugs, that you said way back at the start, uh, that one of the things about being a filmmaker is you are immortal. Um, your work will exist beyond you. And Albert, um, you know Cynthia, if you actually listen to this, and and your family, uh, our heart breaks for you. We love you. Uh, and just know that Albert is immortal now. He will he will live forever. Um, and that's honestly, that's all we can ever hope for in life. Um, it feels weird to plug shit now, but I'll just say you can find me on Twitter and Hive. Uh, Hive, the vibes are much more chill. I am loving Hive, except <laughs> like Brandon said, except for the fact that it takes 10 goddamn minutes for the fucking app to load. But uh, <laughs> find me on Twitter and Hive and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. You can find us on uh, the show on all those things. Uh, the easiest way to find us is just to go to Linktree slash A4E podcast. You'll find everywhere we are on social media. We have a Reddit. Uh, feel free to jump into that Reddit and chat with us there. Uh, I haven't been as active there as I should, but I'm hoping to be more active soon. Um, Liam can be found at Liam Odin on Instagram and Twitter and Hive. Uh, and again, but if you're listening, hope you have a great uh, time in uh, in London uh, scouting. Uh, we did get a couple. I put out a call for some people to give us their thoughts on Albert. We didn't get very many, but we do have a couple. Uh, and so I am going to play those as our, our exit here. Um, we'll be back next week with hopefully a, a little more normal show. But uh, Albert, Cynthia, we love you. Uh, people listening, we love you all. Uh, watch a fucking Albert Pian movie tonight. Um, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, peace. Hello, Mike, Vice, and Liam. I'm Dirk Marshall, host of the VHS podcast, but more importantly, I grew up in my father's video store. Albert's films were all over in our aisles, and I had unlimited access to them all. Radioactive Dreams, Vicious Lips, Dangerously Close, Sword and the Sorcerer, they're all faves. I mean, the man could spin gold out of a shoestring budget. We could call him Rumpelpunskin, but we won't. That sounds gross. Albert's one of those directors whose name means something. No matter how messed with he was by a producer or something, his fingerprints are still there, and we all just want to high-five over his films. The one film I wanted to talk about is Nemesis 2, Nebula. I had a friend who struggled with mental health, and because of that, also addiction. And we would hang out, and I would attempt to distract them from both issues. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had the VHS of Nemesis 2, and we watched it. A lot. I love Albert's Nemesis franchise because it literally kept my friend alive. 
Sadly, much later they passed, but their memory lives on with me and Sue Price in those Nemesis sequels. Thank you all for providing a platform for those of us whose lives have been touched by such a creative and talented person. Albert, we love you. Take care, gentlemen. This is Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. The Schlocketeer, just popping in to say that I wouldn't be the movie-loving maniac that I am today if it weren't for Albert Pune. I had the privilege of seeing Cyborg on the big screen opening weekend at the age of five years old, and it twisted me in the best way possible. His movies have been a staple of my life ever since, and I just want him to know that he rocks. Always has, always will.